500 years ago he washed ashore the sole survivor of a shipwreck and upon the skull of the man who killed his dad he said i'm mad i must eradicate piracy injustice and cruelty and all my sons will follow me so evil doers will believe that this man cannot die the phantom the ghost who walks the phantom enemies beware the phantom's always there but you won't find the phantom he finds G'day everybody, and for those who are coming late, you're listening to Expand the Phantom Podcast. My name is Jermaine, and tonight I'm joined by Dan. How are you, buddy? I'm still recovering, Jam. (laughs) (laughs) What are we, recording this on Sunday night? We've both been, oh, well, I've been home from Supernova for a week now. Um, You've been back for, what, six days, seven days, five days? Yeah, five, six days, yeah. And I feel like I... um, I've also had the last week of term uh, to cope with after I got back, but I'm I'm still feeling a bit flat and recovering from from Sydney. <laughs> what about you? Uh, that's yeah. Uh, no, I'm fine. I'm pretty fine. Um, I found we'll we'll talk more about it in the other one, but I found that actually having the extra day in Sydney actually helped a lot, um, especially with like the jet lag and. It gave me the opportunity to get some extra sleep. But this podcast is going to be about the speeches of Supernova 2019. Yeah. So we've got four of them for you tonight, folks. Uh, they will be timestamped in the article and also in the show notes as well. So if, like our last marathon episode, which was over four hours, which was amazing to listen to, you only want to listen to certain bits, you can Actually, because um, this, this will probably be a long one too, won't it? Because the two yeah. panels were an hour each, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, yeah. So it will probably be about three hours. And uh, the So what we'll do is we'll quickly go over them and listen to them, and then we'll talk about our opinions of them, and then we'll, uh, and then we'll, and then we'll finish the podcast. Now, uh, if you are wanting to kind of hear about a bit of a wrap-up about Super 2019, that will come out in the in about another week's time. Um, so we're going to do this, we're going to do it separately. We've actually had a lot of requests for the speeches that you're about to listen to. So that's the reason why we did them first, because um, it sounds like more people want to listen to the panels than the fans dribbling nonsense during the weekend. So I'm that's sure. what we're going to do. <laughs> <laughs> so... Um, so first of all, we have the Sunday Supernova panel, which was with Jeff Weigel, Paul Mason, Jamie Johnson, and Ed Constant, uh, which was which was fun. It was it was interesting to talk, uh, kind of, you know, uh, hear from some creators, talk about the different processes and like, what they do in the Phantom Universe and all that. So mm-hmm. you'll enjoy that one. The second one uh, was by Rita. Uh, I'm going to butcher the, her last name, Rita Yukuch. <laughs> um, yeah, I think that's right. That's not too so far we'll, off the mark. So we'll, we'll, I'll spell it out just so you can, um, so you don't think I'm, you know, making this <laughs> up. It's U E C H T R I T Z. So if you can pronounce that first go, you're a better man than what I am. <laughs> um, so Rita talked about at the Lee Fort Memorial Bengals Explorer dinner about her Papua New Guinea connection with the Phantom Shields, which we've all seen, and also the the Wagi the Wagi tribe. Wagi, I think uh, she pronounced. Wagi, it. 
Yeah. Um, so it was a very fascinating five-minute speech. Five. Um, <laughs> <laughs> the timestamps say otherwise. <laughs> I know Richard well, Fry was tapping his watch thinking, oh, this is supposed to be five minutes. <laughs> um, but it was a very fascinating um, uh, talk. Uh, we have, uh, both of us have talked to her before and after the dinner, and we have uh, expressed interest in um, doing a, a, a a full-length podcast uh, with the people involved with the book yeah. that's coming out in October, I think, November, I think it is. Yeah, and previous podcast guest, Om Roy, mm. who I think will be particularly interested in uh, this conversation and um, uh, most people who have seen posts that he's put up on Facebook, on Facebook would, would know that uh, he recently picked up a shield and um, it sounded like Rita knew the person who was involved in helping him purchase that. So mm. I think Omar particularly will enjoy this one. And yeah, hopefully, I think it was Chris who wrote the book on it. Um, we do hope to speak to them at some point. Yeah, and there's, after this part, after the talk, I did find out that there's actually a couple of people that have actually got you know, there's actually a few of them in Phantom collections around Australia. Mm. I know one collector, I believe, actually has three or four in their collection. So, um, yeah, so they are, they are and, around. Yeah, yeah. no, I'm, I'm not going to spoil it for people, but I was surprised at how few that she was aware of that mm. she sort of thinks are in existence. I probably thought in my head there was more than that, but uh, yeah. anyway. So, so she, I, thought, third, I thought she was really yeah. fascinating. Yeah, it was. It was fascinating. It's a very good word. Um, the third, uh, the talk or the third panel was by Jeff, which is again at the Lee Fork Memorial Bangalore Explorers Club dinner. And that's basically his journey to becoming the Sunday Phantom artist. Now, this was amazing. This was, um, you know, I've actually been speaking to people who weren't at the dinner and they've been asking me, did anyone record it? Did anyone record it? Because I've heard it was so good, I want to listen to it again. I want to listen to it. And then even Jeff was, uh, when he found out that we recorded it, he was actually uh, very happy about that as well because um, I think well, he I said, wasn't too surprised because I did ask him yeah. ahead of time if he would mind if we did record it. So No, no, no. <laughs> he, was, he was actually very thankful that it was recorded because he wanted to actually go back and listen to it. And um, yeah. uh, Kim, his wife, was actually kicking herself for not recording it as well. Right. So... I'll be really, I hope mm. that, um, it, I think it caught a lot of people off guard as to where it went, and it was probably mm. more emotional than anyone sort of expected, and mm. I really hope the emotion comes out in the audio, because it was certainly really apparent in the room by, by yes. watching Jeff and, and by looking at Kim, particularly sitting at the table behind him. Um, mm. I think the, there's, a, there's some stuff that I think is left unsaid. In the speech, as good as it is and as much as he tells us, I think there's some stuff that's left unsaid, which is probably appropriate. It's obviously a really personal journey for them. But, uh, yeah, I, I, yes. yeah, it didn't. there was no one who was unmoved by it in the room. Yes, exactly. Now, our fourth one, we did um and ah about including this or not, and we <laughs> are including it purely because Jeff uh, is a part of it. So this was a Friday Supernova panel on comics in general. Now, Jeff was a part of it, but then there was also uh, a couple of other um, characters called Simon Bisley and Donnie Cates, and they kind of did try and steal the limelight a bit. And and this is your official warning. There is a little bit of language uh, by those two. Um, Simon Bisley in particular, to be fair. I'm not sure he's <laughs> a great deal. 
Uh, well, no, I don't think anyone swore as much as compared to Simon. But um, the other guests, so all of the guests together was Jeff, Jeff Weigel, Simon Bisley, Hubardo uh, Ramas, Donny Cates, and Megan Hutchinson. Um, and all of their credits are outlined in the at the start of the panel. And I, yep. I get the feeling that um, we probably, as people who are purely Phantom fans, probably didn't un, did maybe underestimated the uh, the broader impact that some of these guys had. Donny Cates, yes. I think, in particular, um, has written quite a lot for Marvel. Um, Umbato Ramos. Was it Spider-Man that he'd worked on? Like yes, yeah, he's a for giant. 15, 20 years, yeah. So yeah, people who are Spider-Man. giants in the in the broader comics industry that yeah. perhaps we're not as interested in, and maybe that's why they um, dominated the panel a little bit. But I thought mm. that Jeff's what Jeff had to say, the interjections, not the interjections, the the input that he had when it came to his turn um, was really interesting, just to give a different yes. perspective. Yes, yeah. And for those who like a little bit of phantom trivia, uh, Simon Bisley actually uh, did he, the he did a, a Legends card in the Gallery Series 1, yeah. which so I didn't a, find out until afterwards, because otherwise I would have got him to sign it. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so he is actually a published phantom artist, and uh, no one called him on that on the day. <laughs> yes, that's correct. So as we said, all of these will be time-stamped. Uh, so sit back, enjoy. Um, and yeah, and we will talk to you when you finish listening to those. Enjoy. Finally, just before we jump into the recordings, just a quick note from the editorial booth. Very sorry about the variable quality of the audio in this one. Uh, as you can imagine, recording in the wild is a little bit tricky. Um, recording from the crowd in a panel, um, as opposed to recording. Um, from the podium in the dinner, you know, we're a bit up and down and there are times where bits of paper were put over the microphone and thank you Bradley for helping us with that one on the Saturday night. But anyway, just, um, yeah, just a bit of an apologies and you may have to go up and down on your volume controller there a little bit. Uh, we hope you can forgive us that one and if one of them is really annoying you and you can't deal with it, just, uh, look at the timestamps and skip forward to the next one. All right. Thanks very much. Cheers. We'll work on it. By four o'clock today, the last panel, you'll be having a great time, I promise. How many of you were here yesterday? Yeah? Most of you? Did you have a good time? Yeah? You looking forward to today? We got some fans of the Phantom in the house? Yeah. Well, if you're not, this could be a very long hour. (laughs) I made them laugh. Good. You're warming up to me. Now, uh, I would like you to make some noise, please, for some very, very exciting writers and illustrators who have worked on the Phantom. Please give it up for Jeff Weagle, Andrew Constant, Jamie Johnson, and Paul Mason. Hello. Specifically, you know, from that. 
that age of, what was I, seven, which comics those were. And I can recall specific, you know, panels from those comics. And uh, there was just something about it I was hardwired to instantly be attracted to. And after that, it was off to the races for me. Um, kind of similar in a way. Um, I, when I was young, I had a really bad speech impediment, so I still have one if you ask certain people. But um, my mum would do anything possible to get me to read, and she saw me iron off comic books one day at the um, local news agency. We could still buy lots of comic books at the local news agency, and she went right. That's it. But she bought me a whole bunch. And like Jeff here, it was off to the races from then. I do still remember though what issue I, I fell in love with comics. I always thought they were great. Um, but it was, um, does everyone remember Norm Greyfoyle? He did some, uh, he's done some fan work previously as well, some nice images there. Um, he did a rat catcher, two issue arc, and that's still, I remember reading that going, well, this is amazing, and why am I doing anything else in my life but thinking about comic books? <laughs> uh. So basically, I stumbled into it from, my dad used to have the little uh, Amazing Spider-Man paperbacks, the Steve Ditko uh, Spider-Man in like full color. And um, I remember reading them and, and just kind of tearing through them. And um, my godfather, Glenn, who everyone here would know, uh, one day rocked up uh, my doorstep on my birthday with a uh, comic. Uh, and that really kind of put me down the rabbit hole. Uh, but I've always really loved kind of Spider-Man um, Batman and Phantom, uh, but yeah, just how any normal kid would just kind of, oh, this looks good, and then just down the road. So, yeah. Um, when I was younger, my mother and I were in a pretty bad place, so we were staying with uh, friends for a while. They didn't have a TV. They had an aquarium, which doubled as a television, I suppose. <laughs> it was quite large and took up a lot of space. If you like fish, anyway, I'm getting off topic. <laughs> uh, the guy that owns the apartment we were staying at uh, had a part of Phantom Comics, had read comics before, so I, I vaguely remember, I don't remember the specific stories, but I do remember Sir Barry strips, reading through those books. Um, so that kind of set me on the path. There was a bunch of kids in primary school that collected Spider-Man. And uh, picking up those old uh, Steve Ditko, Barry Glasson, uh, there was a Mark Bagley uh, issue I remember. Bagley. Yeah, in particular, that would just blew my top off. So, it's been like that ever since. You guys are all so young. You're talking about things like Red Catcher and Eric Larson. The comics I was talking about were like 
I like the fact that you know you know that song, but you didn't think. Here's a fact about Jack Kirby and the fandom, which I put together immediately in my head. I'm sure these guys are in you. <laughs> now, Andrew and Jeff, at what point did you discover the Phantom? Because Jamie and Paul, obviously, the Phantom's there early on to you guys. Yeah, well, I, I came by the Phantom uh, in my daily newspaper back in my hometown. Uh, it was just, uh, it was probably started running before I was even born. And by the time I read it, and, you would see it in the paper. It's just something I saw every day. And uh, I always admired, that was back in the like 60s and 70s, and so I get to admire uh, Cyberry's craftsmanship and uh, that, that look of things, that sort of DC house look that he had sort of helped craft uh, was always something that appealed to me a lot. I don't remember not reading The Phantom. Like it was always there. Like you know, the first thing my, I, I, I've always liked. Like I literally, I'm not even trying to be smart. I don't remember not reading. Like oh, I'm reading the fandom when I start doing that. I don't know. Like it was always there. Um, my dad never understood. On that though, my dad's never understood what my crew 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 is. But now he says with his friends, Oh yeah, yeah, my son, he writes the fandom. I go, Ah, oh, I get that. So you know, it's it's always been. It's just, I've always read it. I was still beside Barry, Barry, like most uh, people my age. I was going to say kids, but I'm not a kid. You read it in newspapers? Oh, yeah. Very close to it. Yeah, newspapers, but old issues as well. Like, you know, when I got the hot stuff, I got the Phantom. It was a package deal for my granddad. And, you know, so I've always read it. I have always read the Phantom. And because you all grew up around it or reading it in some way, is there an, addi an additional pressure? when you work on it, because it is loved, it is adored, and it's always been there. Um, I, I think more that was the fact that I got into it, is because, um, and I only do the covers, so I just like the aesthetic of, you kind of pick that up and it, it grabs the reader, and obviously these guys are you know, amazing storytellers, and they're able to really you know, portray that in there. But I just wanted to contribute in some small way. It's something that I loved so much, and I, I feel privileged to be able to do it. So there is a little bit of pressure, but it's all internal. Um, the Phantom fans are always so supportive, and you don't always get you know positive feedback. Sometimes there's a bit of negative, but they're always respectful about it. Yeah, you haven't seen the comics forum. Uh, <laughs> well, well, we're in the online. Yeah. We're in the digital age where they, you know. Uh, when the guys started Image Comics in 92, you know, they didn't hear any of all they saw were the people at conventions screaming their names and lining up around the block. Uh, they didn't get that kind of negative feedback that you get, you know, with online forums and yeah. things like that. But the, the bad is about this being in a, in a sea of a, a lot of um, support and love and, uh, so, yeah, to the I, I've never read a comic in my life. I refuse to. <laughs> no, I, I, when, when I started with Demon last year, um, some guy messaged me going, dude, dude, great, so this is what you can't do. I was like, okay, I'm never reading comments again in my entire life, <laughs> so I just don't read. Not because I don't want to hear what people think, but I think com comments are like hand grenades coming at you, which you're not aware, aware of, so I'd normally stay away. Unless you want to send me a private message, say, thank you. University, and we get student evaluations, and I don't read 
ever after reading the first few, where if you've got a class of 50 and you get a good you know, standard of, of comments that are lovely, and then there's one or two people with an agenda of, well, he marked me down for an assignment, so I'm gonna blast him quite personally in the comments. You don't remember all the good stuff, you fixate on the one or two negative people. So from a personal sense, I try to avoid that aspect of it. I'm probably getting off topic to what the original question was. Suffice to say that there's a legacy of how the fandom is presented, particularly because Cy Barry had such a long run. So sometimes you feel as though there's a, if there's a deviation from that from your illustration sense, you're worried about what that perspective is going to be. So, and I think it's probably something psychological because uh, everybody that I've encountered outside of that, with my own brain, um, likes the work. And they like to see new and exciting things and new and interesting takes on the character. So yeah, the pressure's probably more so coming from a place of apparent wham but also your style isn't a traditional style. That's the point. It's new and exciting and energetic, and you are, uh, you know, influenced by people like Jack Kirby. It's that kind of next generation, like trying to introduce that to the young crew. It's still like your regular fandom and kids fandom, and they can coexist in harmony. Yeah, look, it's probably one part the animation background and one part failing to be able to draw realistically, like Will Eisner used to say. Style is a manifestation of trying to draw and failing. Uh, so, you know, or something like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Deadline style, like yeah. uh, John Romita Jr. used yeah. to say. Yeah. So do you, let me ask, do you get flack about not being like this side layer, very clone? Yes. I had to, uh, I had a few fights, not fights physically, because you would win. <laughs> but what I'm, what I'm saying is there were a couple of people uh, early on that had their issues, but they dissipated, which is nice. Uh, although I did have a, an interesting gentleman earlier in the year at the convention. Oh, who's that? Um, we, well, I don't talk about him no more. Uh, shallow grave. No. Uh, he, Remember, he, he draws a kid's book, by the way. A, 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 a man without a filter stopping the things coming out of, you know. Was I there for that one? No, it was before the show started, and he made some comments, and I said, You have a nice day, sir, and ended the conversation. Is that the one I said to keep the guard, guard, guard up and look out for brain damage? Yeah, that's, um, that's life in general. You just got to keep your guard up and. Protect yourself from brain damage. Well, that does raise an interesting point. How much freedom do you get with the stories you tell and the illustrations you draw when it comes to the Phantom? Um, everything has to be approved. So I normally say to an editorial, hey, I've got an idea, and they go, yes or no. Um, then I write a small pitch, and then it's, look, you can do anything you want as long as people agree with you. Like, you know, I can't just go out and write a story and go, guess what, I've written a fan story. And they go, well, no, that's not the story we want. So it's always about making sure that once you have it's like anything, you get an idea, you tick the box, you write the script, and look at the script, then away you go. So, you know, you have as much, you have as much freedom which you're able to buy by doing well and delivering on your earlier pitches there and then delivering those stories again and again and again. So you buy yourself more, I guess you buy yourself more freedom over time. 
all the freedom in the world is long as you don't screw it up. Yes. <laughs> Oh, yeah. 
There'll be a detailed pre-amp and amp and post-amp details. But most of the time you're working with someone more than one script, you get a sense of who each other is. Yeah. Okay, cool, well let me just not give that much description description or more description. Do you, you do full scripts as well? Does Tony do a full script for you? Or yeah, it's full script. Okay, cool. Um, I think Andrew and I have been pretty lucky with Kid Fan in particular to be able to craft that, that universe, yeah. so to speak, with the, you know, sort of the guidelines of what Lee Falcon set out initially and then yeah. fill in the adventures as we go. Um, so it's been quite freeing, I suppose. Um, it's, it's interesting what you're saying about the, the scripts too, like as an artist, uh, it's been great in that we were, we were friends first before doing. I wouldn't say friends. <laughs> Speak for yourself. Get a, get a really good look. You might want to take some pictures in case. Sorry, I missed this gentleman. No, no, no. I pre-dug one. That's the mistake that most people make is the shallowness of the road. Uh, first step is to dig a very deep kid phantom very deep and he is a big man so it, it was a it was a two-day effort um short description uh, the double page spread which simply oh. say time square <laughs> um, so it's just a lovely relationship that we have for a thousand warriors so um, but yeah, you earn your paycheck well. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I'm joking. I don't get paid by the words. I <laughs> just can't be damned. Uh, I, I, I am kidding. Um, through, both through and King Features in, in my experience and our experience have been, been quite um, uh, accepting and pleasing and, and very little feedback. Uh, what Jeff was saying resonates. It's usually looks great, very good, here's your money. Um, yeah. <laughs> and that's and that's and that's all you want as, a, as an artist. Essentially you don't want to be burning yes, that and burning the, the candle doing redos and redos uh, that you know you're not being paid for. Like if you were like say Freemo's graphic designer or something like that, which could be a bit of a, a burden when you're working with multiple clients. Listen to these guys, I'm lucky because I just get to read a comic that's already been written and go, hmm, let's see what elements I want to put, make a pretty picture, and through a pretty great, they, they hire us to shoot a certain story, and I don't think I've ever had notes. They usually say that, yep, yeah, that's great, we have the colours to be by so and so on. So I think the word that's synonymous across these stories is trust. They've hired these people in different capacities and they trust that they're good at their job and that they know how you work and they know you're going to be true to it. There's not going to be anything explicit or, you know, it's going to stay true to the spirit of the Phantom. And I think being Phantom fans ourselves, we want to kind of uh, honour that as well. So I don't think that there's really much. Jeff said something really good in his speech at the memorial dinner last night and that was, I promise not to break your character. And that really really resonated. I think being fans of the character means that we don't want to go in there and superstar and, and, and tip out the sand yeah. for the next people to come along and go, where are my goddamn toys? Like, they're, they're busted, you know? You don't want to do that. You want to respect, not only for your 
yourself and the work and the character that you honor it, but you know that there's people out there that absolutely love the universe. So, you know, push the character in conflict, you don't want it to be boring, but uh, still leave it in a good place. Well, the reason he's been around for eight years, so. Like, you have to know. Name, you have to know the character. Like, as a writer, I think that's amazing good advice from Jeff. Not talking for you, but talking to you. <laughs> sorry, sorry, Jeff. I know that's awkward, but I, I, I thought that was a it's, it's true as a writer, you have to, the one thing you have to do is know the character in front of you. Like, you can't, like, you know, even if it's your own credit, I'm employed in DC, working for it. I've done a lot, lot, lot of work for hire now. Yeah, you just, you can't smash the toys. Unless, of course, you can give them special dispensation to smash the toys. But, but you're not allowed to smash the toys. You have to actually, like, Polish the book off, and then once you finish, you have to be able to put it back in the box. That's it. And, and I have to say that over the last like 30 years, there, there's been a lot of toy smashing as far as I'm concerned. Yeah. And it pisses me off. <laughs> and then they have to use magic or time travel or something to fix yeah. everything. But well, you know, the, the really aggravating part of it is when these companies will say, we'll do something that's just a stunt. I said, what if this beloved character suddenly became a scumbag? Wouldn't that be cool? <laughs> and then we could sell a few issues that way. And uh, yeah, you can sell it to me and I will I'll put it in a cement until it's getting hard enough to throw it over your head. And throw it in the ditch on top of him on the I feel like I might be dead soon, so <laughs> this is a posthumous recording. <laughs> yeah, I gotta make that recording. <laughs> but, you know, the way I look at it is, they're not, I'm in charge of these, well, you're able to use that metaphor. I'm in charge of these toys, but they're not mine. But, I, you know, I also say they're not King Features toys either, as far as I'm concerned. They belong to you guys, because they mean more to you guys than they do to some editor at King Features that's, and, you know, not to denigrate those guys, because they've never been anything but nice to me. But, uh, you know, they don't, these editors at these different houses don't always have the same appreciation for these characters that we do. And they're just trying to find a way to sort of make an impact in the company. And a lot of times that ends up breaking a lot of China. And I don't approve of it. And I won't participate in it. Because you're all fans, do you ever find yourself in a conundrum where you'd like to do something as a creative that the fans may not like because fan service isn't always the right way to take a story. I've never, I, this is not going to sound harsh, but okay, this might sound harsh, but not supposed to be harsh. I, I don't think about the fans when I write. No, not quite. No, but. You should see the fans. But the. No, not that. Paul's job. Come on, I'll take you home. This is why I'm no longer. Former fan and writer Andrew Constant. Um, no, because you're doing the fans disservice if you're trying to think about what they would like. Like the only thing you can do as a writer, as a writer, um, as a writer, um, is write the best fan story that you would like to read. If I start thinking about what you want or what you want or even you, I, I sort of um, then I'm not going to give you this. If I think about what you want, then I'm not going to write the story that you do. Like, you know, if I start trying to second guess what a fan's after, then I can't be truly in the moment, moment when I'm trying to write a story. Like, a story is not, like, keep that in mind, you do want to deliver.
delivery story people want to read, but you can't second-guess yourself during the pro process there, which is what happens when you start thinking about what fans would like. Because that should be ingrained in your process already there as soon as you got the job and did your, and did your research, basically. But don't you think that's kind of your your process is trying to give the fans what they want because you're a fan. You're doing something with the that thing. you want to do. I guess. But I don't know what they want, probably. I, I, I think you're right. I just think it, you're right. But I just think it in different terms. Like, I never think of myself as a fan once I got a job. Like, I'm, like when I, I, I just completely block that part of my mind off because I've got to first and foremost then be a good writer. And sometimes being a good writer is not being a good fan. Like, you just have to think about what the story is because it could be a story outside continuity, it could be a different type, type of story which a regular fan may not enjoy. So, you've got to focus on that particular. Uh, job at hand, which sometimes means I can no longer be a fan. I've just I've got to be a writer first, which is you know it's also a little bit lanky. Anyway. No, 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 it makes sense. I think it was the first thing I was going to say is that you have to serve your story. Yeah. And uh, but having said that, being a fan, no, 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 I was, I was thinking of what Jeff said. Being a fan instinctually means that when you're creating the story, yeah. The, the, you're enjoying what you're doing and, and because you've got a passion for that story or for that thing, it, it comes out in the work and hopefully, the, the one thing is I hope that the readers appreciate yeah. the story because at, at the end of the day, even though you're writing for yourself or you're creating for yourself, you want them to pick up the book and keep picking up the book. I get to be a fan when I look at Jeff's art or when I read your Vietnam story and look at your cover again, I get to be a fan and that just all becomes part of the process again. But when I'm writing, I don't get to think like that. Which is Absolutely. And Jamie, because you get to read the comics that you uh, do covers for in advance, how is that as a fan that must be fulfilling? Uh, it's good and it's interesting because a lot of the my style, I try and do a little bit more of a modern style. So over the last few years since um, Glenn and Renee have taken over through, they've really um, looked at expanding the creative, um, you know, the input from different artists. So the cover artists we have range from, you know, all over the world and also local talent. So each style is very different. Mine is lends more towards that kind of modern uh, take, and a lot of the Swedish stories. I seem to be given. So when I get them, they're in Swedish. So I'm really reading the story, but visually. So I really don't know what's happening uh, dialogue-wise, but that's the beauty of it. If, a, if an artist is doing their job, you should be able to read it without it. But then when the words are put there, it really just enhances that experience as well. So it's kind of that give and take. But yeah, like I love seeing it um, firsthand. And for me, when I read something, I, I try and go with a fresh mind. It's kind of good that I don't um, see the dialogue. Um, I get to interpret those images and, and see what kind of really, um, you know, what it lights up in my mind. Uh, and hopefully people enjoy, you know, the, the kind of splashy image that I'm able to do. I usually do it over a, a double-page spread. Um, but yeah, it's just, it's a bit of, I'm a fan myself. It's just something that, if, what I would want to see. So it is it is a fun process, but I don't really get to read them, per se. <laughs> Now, if anyone in the audience has any questions for our panelists at any time, raise your hand and I'll come and grab those. I know there are some Phantom fans out there. Um, but in the intro, tell us a little bit about Phantom Vietnam. Oh, yeah. Yeah, do that. Um, so, when I was working on Kid Phantom, uh, I wanted to do a little short 
first kind of comics was self-publishing, and then I got in with like some local publishers um, based on a bit of writing and, and drawing. And uh, I just had a writer's itch. Um, so I pitched a bunch of these short little stories, and uh, Glenn picked that one in particular. I guess it was a little bit more fully formed. I was actually inspired by uh, a Ken Burns documentary. Ken Burns and Lynn Novak did um, uh, Vietnam War, which was a fantastic series. Um, actually, it reminded me of the story about the, the chief oh. that you did, and I think you watched the, the World War II that, series. That came from there. Yeah, that's yeah. when I found out about that character. Yeah. So He's talking about an online a comic that I did on, on my website that I keep for for kids, it's called robotsandquicksand.com, and it's the story of this, uh, uh, the sort of last, what was it, I, it's been a couple of years, so he was a Sue, I don't remember. Yeah, yeah, the yeah. last Sue. Yeah, she was this guy who was a, a, a Native American fighting World War II, and uh, uh, you don't need more information than that, I'm sorry to interrupt you. No, no, it, it was beautiful. It reminded me of uh, the, some of the layouts. Reminded me of another book that inspired me, Will Eyes in the Last Day of Vietnam, and it was very open, open gutters, um, told from the perspective of a sergeant taking you, the reader, around the camp, and it's his last day before he's being shipped home, and the camp is attacked. So he's freaking out, and you, and you, it's kind of like you're a participant in the story, essentially. But I love the open panel, I like the greenness of it. I'm a big fan of Harvey Kurtzman's uh, old uh, EC comics from the uh, 1950s and that sort of thing. Um, so I wanted to, after sort of doing that and, and watching the, the Vietnam War documentary, there's a lot of stories, and it was essentially a jungle. So I thought, well, we've got Phantom. Let's see how he would function in this place, which is quite, for lack of a better term, hellscape. And he's a character with uh, noble intentions who doesn't kill. So that was the sort of the, the, the thought process behind it. Plus, um, I was a fan of that old story, The Phantom Goes to War, from um, the, yeah, World War II era. So it's kind of a combination of all that stuff that percolated into a short story, which after a meeting generated into a, a longer story, which then generated to a possible series. So uh, there was talk of a, a war special, which came out in January, and uh, the story featured as part of that. Um, so I'm working on what well, got some good feedback by both Fru and King Features for that. So, and, and the readers that were very kind. So now I'm working on the second story and so on to complete and a few other afterwards. That sounds fantastic. Now we've got a question from one of our young fans. Um, Paul, how long does it normally take you to do a Vietnam Vietnam sketch? Oh, like a sketch itself? Not too long. Why do you want one? I can sort you out right later. How long does a normal page take you? Normal page? Uh, I do them in spurts, so I'll draw a pencil like roughly three or to four at a time. So if I can get it done within a day, I'm happy with that. Um, it's hard to kind of break down into sort of specific days, but I could probably, given that in my teaching job, do about four or five pages a week if I'm lucky. Uh, not a lot of sleep, but give or take. You never sleep, is that correct? You've never slept a day in your life. 
I have is a bit of a distant memory, but it's a lovely memory. If I shut my eyes long enough, I can get something. <laughs> On your process, you do your layouts traditionally or all digital now? I started traditionally. Kifam, between Kifam 1 and 6 was, was traditional. Blue pencil or red pencil? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and then um, I got it, I picked up an iPad. I was going for a, a position, I was in an active position at the university, didn't get the job. Uh, went to retail therapy and bought an iPad. Uh, <laughs> and it became a, a, an object of expediency. Partly, actually, again, uh, Mr. Michael's influence, because you did a lot of your uh, early strips for digital. Yeah, yeah. I love my current ones too. So yeah, I'm going back, I go back and forth a lot. Much yeah, this so I'm the fans who want the art. <laughs> <laughs> but the first experiment was with the fan Vietnam story was completely digital. That was my first complete digital one. And when I didn't screw it up, uh, Kid Phantom 7 and 8 had been all digital. I noticed a lot of your half tone effects and things like that. Is that part of the reason? Is that, is that more to the coloring process? Yeah, that's color. That's my manliest influence of uh, the same time. These guys, yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah, absolutely. Are you using Procreate on your own? Yeah, Procreate, and there's a good program, it's a free program uh, called Betty Bank Paint, which I like the, the pen tool and that. The mapping tool is nice, it's just a jagged pen. And the halftone layers, it's like, um, uh, you can, uh, it's not even a brush. You could uh, do the half tones, and then if you don't like the dot consistency, you can change it automatically. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's, it's amazing. It's free. Did I mention it's free? It's free. Yeah. <laughs> but Procreate's great. How much is it? Uh, Fifteen bucks. Um, yeah, it's free. Right? Oh, okay. yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, Paul, earlier you raised an interesting point about how you saw that documentary, which kind of left some ideas for Phantom Vietnam. How much does the content that you're seeing or reading or consuming in other ways influence the stories that you tell in words or in art? Uh, I feel like I'm going to hijack this, this panel. I do apologize, Jens. Um, I'm, try, I'm trying to direct you guys. That's the word anyway. What was that bad joke I missed? What is it? What's that panel here? Tell me later. No, I was going to say um, a lot, in fact, um, especially with NAM in particular, it's quite complicated. And there's not just the 10 years that the Americans were there, there's the 30 years. And I don't want this to fall into a lecture about Vietnam. But uh, a lot of books, um, even anecdotal conversations, um, caught up with a lovely gentleman. I don't think he's... Oh, he's here, yes. Excellent. Uh, so, Philip, not to embarrass you, um, uh, Philip served for us, and it was um, lovely to hear, obviously, his stories, um, and get a perspective from someone that lived it. Uh, so I'm very appreciative of that, because in talking to that, uh, it gives a, a sense of authenticity and it's not trying to mine, obviously, people for it, but it's to pay respects to it. So there's always a, a sense of uh, a story can kind of come from anywhere because it's inspirational in that sense. And so long as I serve the authenticity of that story in that world and I serve the authenticity of the character, the fan 
does the content that you watch or read affect what you write or draw? No, I'm writing back in. Um, <laughs> no, of course it does. Like, not not to sound that sounds really rude. But <laughs> yeah, it does. Jeez. It's okay. I only let out once a year out of my cage, and, and then I have to humor for a day um, no, no, it does. Like part of being a creative is that you have to consume, and you have to. It's like it's like eating. You have to eat well to you know fuel yourself well. So you have to be. So you do try and read what you want to be influenced by as much as possible. Uh, for me, I, of course, I don't write fantasy, but I write my own graphic novels. And so I've got some experience with, with how to, you know, where, where your stories come from. I get that question all the time. And uh, frankly, it's, I, I, most often for my books, what I start with is, if I want to do a graphic novel, Say, what should I do my next graphic novel about? It ought to be about something that I'm going to like drawing. Yes. Right? So, uh, I'm so not. Lots of horses? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I hate cars, so it's like not going to be about the Indiana. Mad Max, anyone? Mad Max, you yeah, like right. right. yeah. I'm not going to do that. So, like, in one case, uh, I said, well, uh, you know what's fun? It's drawing dragons and monsters and things like that. So, that's how Dragon Girl came about. And of course, you have to, you have to craft a good story around it. But it's good to have a starting point that you know you're going to be able to live with for a couple of years while you're working on it. Uh, and the next one, then the next time I asked myself that question, uh, the answer was uh, aliens and spaceships, and that turned into quantum mechanics, my latest graphic novel. So, but you know, given the, given those starting points of things that you like to draw and like to tell stories about, you still have to craft an intelligent and reasonably structured story around it. Certainly. And Jeff, you were saying beforehand that you've got an upcoming Sunday strip set in Australia for the first time. Tell us about that. Yeah, I, I can't say for sure if it's absolutely the first time, because I don't have a strong sense of the whole 80-year history of the character. But I can tell you that, uh, yeah, the, the strip, the, the story that's running now, the free Avro front, uh, I just have a few more weeks left to do, and that'll wrap up, I think, in November. And uh, after that, we get to a historical phantom story where Phantom is telling about one of his ancestors' adventures, and it involves uh, some travel to Australia. And uh, one of the significant characters is a significant historical figure in Australia's past. Pauline Hanson? How long are we sitting on that one? <laughs> That's, that's all I can tell you about. It's pretty simple. She's a figure of something. <laughs> <laughs> We've got a question down the front here. Okay. Um, I'm fascinated with the, the Sunday illustrators, especially because I've always felt that going back to McCoy and Evan Ray Moore, you were given so much, you're given room to make something bigger, but you also can do it in black and white, and then it's coloured. We very luckily get to probably see both especially with digital land or newspapers and then through printing. The style, can you reflect on how you think your style fits in with your predecessor? Um, yeah, I don't give a lot of thought to that because frankly my style over the years has been, has grown out of the same tradition that shaped Siberia and that Siberia shaped. You know, I'm a Silver Age guy. 
So my go-to artists are going to be Foster and Raymond and Kurtzman and Cyberry and Danbury and you know the Marvel guys uh, have a lot of influence. I, I sometimes see Kubert and Nick Cardi and uh, uh, Gene Coleman in my work too. Just little things of it. That's, that comes natural for me. And I don't worry too much about my style because that fits the family. So, you know, I, I suppose that's why they hired me because what I do fits their notion of how the character is supposed to look. And so I let my natural inclinations take care of themselves. My only, the, the thing that I do work at and I'm trying to stay conscious of is um, the got a very specific face. You know, that Cyberry face uh, sort of works the same way. For me, that's who the Phantom is, uh, the way, you know, Kurt Swan's Superman was, was Superman, and when everybody else was doing it, they weren't getting it quite right. Uh, now, I don't try and copy Cyberry very exactly, but I keep his face in mind. I don't want to stray too far from it, but I still want, I want it to be the same guy, even though it's through my filter. And uh, I, frankly, from panel to panel, I don't always hit the target, I don't think. And I sometimes find that out you know, a few weeks after when I look at the strip and I go, I didn't really get that right before I sent it off. But uh, that's what I'm trying for anyway. That's what I try for every time I start laying lines down on the page. Did that answer your question fully enough? Okay. We got a question down the front. Um, Jamie. Which one did you try as a kid, Spider-Man or As a kid, when I started with Spider-Man, but once Trans I started, I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> well, Spider-Man got me into comics, because that was the first comic that I found. But once I found the Phantom, I didn't put it down. So I collected the Phantom from there. So I, I would say, overall, definitely Phantom. Yeah. I feel like you answered correctly. Which <laughs> 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 one? <laughs> we'll add you to the mass grave. Good question down the front. Uh, so Jeff, with the uh, Sunday story with um, in, in Phantom, are you taking bribes for cameos? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, it's become a little bit of a thing. I get a couple of requests, and I go, yeah, sure, I can do that. And the first one, I think, was uh, Tony had said, hey, this is a long-time Phantom fan, this guy in Scandinavia, and I think it'd be fun if we could stick him and his granddaughter into this trip. And I was like, yeah, sure, tell me some photos. So we did that, and uh, then Pete Kloss, a guy that a lot of you guys already know, uh, who had been in the strip actually as a character, uh, Paul Ryan had put him in some years back. And he very specifically sent me a bunch of, of fo like posed photos of him being like sinister. And he said, oh, I really love being in the strip sometime. And he sent me like a dozen photos of himself, all posed. And I was like, shit, why not that's fine with me? Because I like to keep everybody happy. I can see that part of my job. And so he was in a recent uh, one. And now I've got uh, Jamie Diaz saying, Oh, you did it for him, what did you do it for me now? And it's like, That's my game's So uh, the next time you see Diane, she's going to look like a lot like Jamie Diaz. Okay, that's the question. So at what point did you start? thinking it was possible to get into the career of this and how much have you improved over the years? I never thought it was possible, I still don't think I'd be. <laughs> no, I, I, uh, 
I did a credit and graphic novel. Um, I worked tirelessly for six or seven years, and I didn't really been full full time for two years. As a writer, it was a bit of a different gig because you need more than one job going at a time to keep going. There. So um, yeah, I still don't think I'm doing comics. I still I'm still waiting for the day that somebody goes, Nah, it's all a lie. Wake up, you've been in the dream. Go back to your day job. Like thanks. So um, yeah, look, it's I it's. A, privilege to do the work. Um, I love doing the work and if it ended tomorrow I'd still be very happy with the work I was able to do. But my my thinking is that you can't I mean you try to become a, you try to be a professional, you try to get published. But you can't think too much or worry too much about oh when am I going to become a professional? When will I think of myself as a professional? Because that's sort of crushing. Just do the work. Just sit down. Get, just sit down in the chair at the drawing board. Do the work. And you know, from the first hundred pages that I created, I was never sure anybody was ever going to see. But from one to one hundred, when you get to the end, you're a little bit better. Every new page makes you a little bit better, and you just keep pedaling the bike. And uh, you know, at some point you feel like you've gotten good enough to where you want to show it to people and you take the next few steps. But, uh, you know, there's no threshold that you cross until one day you cross it and it's, it surprises the hell out of you. Like the day that you get the call from King Feature Syndicate that you're going to be the new Sunday Grammy Artist. It just strikes like like. Your failure to your success. There's a switch that flips. This is extremely true. There's <laughs> um, something that I tell my students who are in the same boat. You know, Stop now. What's that? <laughs> I'm not going to. Yeah. <laughs> All right, you're going to pass. Um, now I've lost the place. Um, they're usually around the 18, 19, 20 year olds, and they're all animation students or game design students very eager to, you know, oh, I've been looking for a couple of months and I haven't got that gig, what do I do now? Well, there's a lot of stuff that's going on outside of you, you know, and particularly with social media, it can be a, a, a particularly negative drain on yourself and you feel as though the people around you you're competing with, you know, because they're getting opportunities and you might not be getting those opportunities. But at the end of the day, you have to understand that one, social media is a micro-reality. It's not real. Everyone's putting up a facade. We don't get up and go, hey, you know, good morning, I haven't showered in a day, I don't stink. You know what I mean? It's all about putting forward their best selves and selfies on the beach with an inspirational quote. You know, that sort of stuff, right? Um, you have to switch that off and realize that there's things outside of you that are not in your control. But what is in your control is the work that's in front of you that you're doing. So if, if that's the only thing that you can control, then you just work on that. And that's the focus that you've got to give that attention to. Because at the end of the day, there might be people around you that you feel as though are better than you, or a better artist, or better from a standard that you might have. One, an employer might see differently, you might not. You know, I might not be the right person for a, a grim and gritty, realistic reboot, but, you know, something that's an all-ages take on something might be totally different, you know? So there's an element of skill and ability that you've got to develop, but there's also 
an immense amount of luck that needs to take place in right circumstances. So if you remember those sorts of elements, then all you've got to do is just focus on what's there and work at that. If I'm not the best artist, I'll try to be the most hardworking artist. And that's essentially all that you can do in that sense. There's no time limit on the finish line. You know, it took me seven years before I got that opportunity to do Kickman before that. You know, um, working on other stuff that I didn't know was going to see the light of day. Had a Gestalt book out this weekend for the first time, which was nice. Um, uh, that's a plug, by the way. But what I'm saying is that took me years to work on that before I got those other opportunities. So it's just work, work on what you can work on. Sleep, sunshine, food, enjoy yourself, and life is short. Um, I'll jump in quickly because I only do covers and I feel like I <laughs> am cheating by being up here because I get to play in the sandpit but then also see sunlight because these guys are locked away day in day out getting the churning out the content. Um, my, uh, I still can't believe I get to do it. Um, my goal was to do a phantom cup. When I started doing it and said I'm going to try and do this you know, professionally or freelance or whatever, uh, my, I had a bucket list of things to do with storyboarding and, and things like that for advertising, but I just I just needed to tick off. I had an itch I needed to scratch for the Phantom cover. It wasn't very good, and I didn't get a call up for many years after that, but um, I was fortunate enough that my style had improved, and I think what Paul was saying is very true about social media. You put your best self forward, and it's not all real, but you do have to market yourself, and I think by showing that process, and, and it does take a long time and a lot of grit, and um, a lot of hours and a lot of failures. Um, you know, you don't you don't just churn out your best work overnight. You know, it's a process. And so, you know, that one cover turned into I'm just about to do my 18th cover. Um, you know, and I've got other work on the back burner, but it's not. There's no pressure on that. There's no deadline on that. So I feel very lucky in the sense that I get to play in this playground with these talented people uh, and contribute to a character that I love so much. So. Well, unfortunately, that's all the time we have for today. But please put your hands together for Jeff, Andrew, Jamie, Paul! here since I have some notes. This is nothing like a, um, a room full of tragics. <laughs> and I'm very pleased to hear... <laughs> and I'm very pleased to hear that uh, you're all into myth and magic and legends because one of the greatest myths tonight is that I'm an expert on the cult of um, the Phantom in Papua New Guinea. I fell into this role as a, uh, accidentally because uh, my partner here is a very great friend of Don Rowling's and uh, um, he recently gifted Don one of our pup. I, I, I'll tell you, um, this is a follow, follow through, but he re recently gifted Don a wonderful phantom shield from the Wagi Valley in uh, Papua New Guinea. 
what isn't a myth or a legend is I am from Papua New Guinea and I'm a fourth generation uh, Papua New Guinean. Um, my family started out in Rabaul. I was born and raised, born in Rabaul and raised on the mainland. So from the age of eight years old, I was first reading the comic strips of the Phantom because it was a very powerful force in Papua New Guinea and it's, it fitted beautifully with um, um, their own myths and legends. And that's why I sort of slid into the cultural belief system so easily. And there's probably people in this room um, that know much more about, you know, details on the phantom cult in New Guinea, quite honestly, than I do. I'm not an academic on the topic, but I did grow up socially on it. So after it moved from the comic strips and the fruit company started importing uh, them into New Guinea, I think it was 72 or something like that. But in the 60s, we were reading the comic strips and then we saved our money to buy the phantom comic. That was our thing. So bear with me while I just I had to do some notes. I've been travelling. I'm a little bit jet-lagged. Um, I'll talk to you about the artist um, of this lovely shield of Don's um, that Geoffrey bought um, from a, a dear friend of mine, Chris Boylan. Now, if... Um, Don, who's the na man's name I mentioned to you who's Chris's friend uh, who couldn't make it tonight? Uh, he's a member of your club. Glenn, um, Glenn, Glenn Ford. Ford. Anyway... Um, through um, Glenn Ford is actually a very dear friend of Chris Boylan and I must give credit to Chris Boylan tonight uh, because he is a, one of the, um, the greatest collectors probably globally of fandom shields. Um, there's only about 100 of them in existence really and Chris and Glenn um, originally collaborated on a book on the defining, uh, uh, which will be the defining book on phantom shields in Papua New Guinea of the Highlands. Um, interestingly enough, uh, the chap that spoke to me earlier, whose son just bought a shield, uh, raise a hand. The man who's doing podcast? Friend, a Fr friend. A friend, oh, friend, not a son, okay. Yeah. So he would have most likely bought this shield from Chris Boylan, whose friend is in France, right? Who's currently in France about to give an exhibition at Cannes um, and exhibiting some of the Phantom Shields at Cannes Festival with a girlfriend of mine who does um, some extraordinary photography and PNG. I borrowed some plagiarised, I plagiarised and borrowed um, some notes from Chris to be able to talk with, um, there's not a fact checker in the room, is there? No, <laughs> I mean, you're all into myth and legend, so there better not be a fact checker in the room. <laughs> so I just wanted to greet you in our local lingua franca from Papua New Guinea, first of all. Thank you, True Orgeta, long bungwan time me, talk sabi long gusula masalai, stop long Papua New Guinea, all eat wrong way leg and you know got walk about long daytime <laughs> now um thank you true uh, i'll get her so just bear with me while i work through some of these little notes um so i've talked about uh myself a little bit there and um the opening uh so and i've given chris the credit which is due his book by the way will be launched um sometime in august i belong to um a boutique uh, art society that um, promotes and the understanding and um, I guess appreciation of oceanic arts and every year we hold a tribal art fair 
and uh, Jeffrey was my partner here, the sitting opposite Don, was first introduced introduced to the Phantom Shields through this tribal art fair, where he then met Chris um, and bought the, this shield um, uh, for Don. Um, that book is going to be at 150 pages, um, full colour book. Um, it'll have essays and all the Phantom Shields um, that exist in the world today, which, as I said earlier, is about 100. So. Okay, so um, colonial admin in the PNG Highlands after World War II was, as you all would know, was a mandated power um, from, um, from the UN. Australian administration after that uh, needed to address the internal fighting to reflect a good international image. So they, um, as a result of that, um, they tried to suppress the warfare, the indigenous, the local warfare in, in the Highlands, particularly in the Western Highlands, that later on then split into two, they called it the Western Province, I think 2012 or uh, 2012. Fairly recently, yes, that province split into two um, and they called the Eastern Province uh, Jawaka, which is where uh, Don's uh, shield has come from, the artist. Um, so the fighting in the Highlands was never ceased and it never will cease, uh, traditional fighting, but it was suppressed up until... Um, well after New Guinea independence in 1974. Um, the Phantom, um, in form of comic strips, uh, was published in uh, the One Talk, magazine, uh, One Talk newspaper in and now post-Korea, which still exists today, and most of you will know that. And I think I'm sitting next to a man that's been in and out of New Guinea is <coughs> already telling tales of um, New Guinea. Um, you, you could probably say something, Duncan, and your friend across the table. Um, <laughs> well, it seems to be the night for it. So, um, <clears throat> so, um, and then after the 60s, through publications in Sydney, began sending the, the uh, Phantom Comic into PNG commercially. So, um, uh, and it was sold widely across the nation and obviously for reasons I've, I've mentioned, will probably mention again, um, it took off like wildfire. Um, the myth of the phantom, as I've said, aligned beautifully with the myths and legend of, legends of the Highland culture and warfare. Uh, and he uh, started to appear as an inspirational motive on their war shield. <coughs> Um, and uh, and then in the 80s, uh, I mean, it, it just became cult status very quickly once that started. Um, and um, in the 80s, as the warfare reasserted itself, so did the and the war sh and the shields. His motive was used. Um, then and then so did um, the cult of the um, uh, the phantom. So the inspiration for shield adornment and decoration was drawn from the comic, many comic book heroes, but first and foremost, it was the Phantom that always seemed to attract the most attention, particularly in the Western Highlands. Um, uh, I guess their artistic expression <coughs> up there um, was, you know, was particularly drawn to the Phantom. Um, and the reason I mention that is, uh, I think I've already said, um, the, um, the type of warfare that the Wagi engaged in had, um, uh, it had developed into a very highly elaborate and spiritual uh, concept to them. And uh, there was a... Um, 
the first Papua New Guinean, John Mook. Have you heard of John Mook? Uh, he was an archaeologist. Duncan, you might have heard of John Mook, have you? I've yeah. Um, and uh, and he, he is quoted as saying that um, the, the symbolic and religious dimensions were such of these war shields that he uh, is quoted as saying it was a connecting rope between the people and the gods. And so it wasn't just a, a, an incredible artistic expression on these shields or bilas, as we call it in Papua New Guinea, which means decoration. It actually had some very deep and meaningful religious um, and spiritual uh, meaning to it. Um, and, and, of course, in addition to that, the warriors... Um, the warriors had a certain amount of pride um, in their shields, so if it wasn't decorated with the phantom, then it was decorated with something else. Um, that shield, uh, there are... I don't know if any of you are aware of uh, the Papua New Guinea shields. I know you would be with uh, um, traditional Aboriginal shields, but some of them are extraordinarily beautiful. Some of them are decorated both ways and moving from region to region across uh, Papua New Guinea they use whatever is available to them in their environment to decorate, whether it was shell in the islands or somewhere else, um, or you know feathers up in the highlands. So, um, so why did the phantom myth align so well with the imagination of the Highlanders? Well, he was strong and resourceful. He protected against evil. Uh, he seemed invincible. And, and most of all, he was the man who never dies. So he saw that as obviously as protection for themselves um, when they were in on the battlefield. So it was that um, attribute that was the seed of the powerful image of the phantom cult in Papua New Guinea. But once again, I keep on saying in particular, the Western and Eastern Highlands of Papua New Guinea. Other cultural alignments with the phantom was that in Wagi religion, the spirits of consequence had influence in the future over human affairs. And, um, uh, for instance, the Wagi spiritual elders all moved away from um, into higher regions and mountains, just as the phantom skull cave um, was remote and away from inhabited areas. So um, we have all of these tenets. Also, a central tenet of the Phantom was his continuous rebirth through generations with that sort of um, immutable uh, outward appearance. Uh, the comic showed his shadow, for instance. Uh, a lot of the comics show the shadow of the ancestral spirits receding behind him, just as our Papua New Guineans, uh, Guineans revere our Tumbunas, which is our ancest ancestral spirits. And, um, and you know, we're, we're a superstitious culture up there, and um, like most superstitious uh, cultures, we're driven by fear. So, um, you know, once again, it's aligning beautifully with uh, what we all know and love about the Phantom. I, I should just introduce myself as Diana tonight. And I forgot my pip helmet. But yeah. <laughs> anyway, that's for the women in the room. So um, that poignant and powerful aspect of the fandom character is the man who never dies, the ghost who walks in the night, were often used um, to shield the shield holder. Give the wagi, um, given that the wagi also acknowledged ghosts and spirits as part of their real world. As a side interest... The popular uh, admiration of the Phantom in PNG was used by the government 
to sponsor public campaigns for nutrition and um, for AIDS awareness. So here's one you may not know. In New Guinea, he became, became known as the condom man. <laughs> so I, I, you, you, I'm sure that somebody in the room knows that, as Don't I said. Be Don't be ashamed. Don't be ashamed. I'm not be ashamed. Yes, that's true. That's very true. Okay, so first artist connected. Yeah, very good. First artist connected to the fandom shield was Kaipel Carr. He died in 2008. He was an educated man who could read the comic strips when the strips when they first appeared in the 60s um, in one talk, um, meaning one talk is the word for relative or connection of some type, um, and in the post courier. To date, there, as I said to you already, there are about 100 um, Phantom Shields uh, known. Most of those are in institution and in private collections. Don now one of them. Uh, uh, as guns uh, started um, to enter warfare in the late 80s, uh, early 90s, wooden shields were not effective, obviously, so they started making their shields out of metal. Um, and uh, they made them out of 44-gallon um, drums beaten, and then they would transfer the images that they loved so much, and there are some metal phantom shields out there with those images. At best, I would say those those uh, those metal shields, uh, as they say in um, Papua New Guinea, sometimes work. <laughs> <laughs> so eventually, the shield, um, other than for festival ceremonial purposes, of all forms, seized in the Wagi Valley in the, at the beginning of the 21st century. That's why they're now collectors' um, items. Uh, so you can see um, from that very brief um, overview how um, the myths and legends of our culture so beautifully fit into the myths and legends of, um, of uh, our ghost who work, walks. Um, uh, and I just thought I'd end up with a few of the favourite sayings that we had, um, jungle sayings that we grew up with in, in New Guinea because of the strength of character, the invincibility of the man, um, and today is still um, people still buy that uh, that that comic book. When does it come out? Once a month, once a week nowadays. Once a once a fortnight. Forty to forty-one issues a year. And I would I would guarantee you they're always sold out in Papua New Guinea. And in fact, I think a few years back, um, Duncan has an interesting uh, story about license, or perhaps his friend. Um, a few years back, they bought out an entire comic book in Top Pizen, which is our local lingua franca. It'll be really interesting. I might even try and get a, um, a copy of it for your club, because uh, they have contacts through the art fair. Um, so here, here, sorry. <laughs> So some of the ones we love the most, um, of course, is he who looks upon the phantom's face will die a horrible death. <laughs> and never point a gun at the phantom. And given also the intense terrain, how the Wagi use the image on their shields, um, obviously one of the most famous one is he had the strength of ten tigers. And we grew up with that. And um, when he is angry, the jungle shakes. So, um, and for the three girls, I grew up in a primarily do uh, uh, dominant male society in a primarily dominant household with seven brothers. There were three girls in the house 
And of course, we were more interested in leaving our guest room door open at night to see <laughs> to see if it might be closed in the morning. And we all know if it was closed, who would be inside? <laughs> but anyway, just about Don's um, uh, Don Shield very quickly. This is um, uh, now. This is from John Wagi, Wagi Highlands. They often carry the, the province name surname. Um, it's mm -hmm. on timber. It's uh, it's a um, it's close to the the, the Simbu province, which is close to the West Aryan border. Um, John trained himself as a sign writer. Um, he made this shield actually for himself. Um, and so it's a bit special. He wasn't going to sell this shield, but he did. Um, and he sometimes you can sometimes these days uh, uh, request a commission through John. Uh, what else can I tell you about John? Uh, yep, like a um, like most of the people in High, Highlands, he's a great fan of the Phantom. Buys the comics and and decided to. Um, to use this shield, obviously no longer being used in um, in warfare, but to protect, to put on the wall of his house to protect him from the house. Whereas, obviously, up there we have all sorts of masks and other things that we use to, to protect us from evil. But he thought this was powerful enough to protect him from evil. So anyway, I hope that gives you some um, some sh sense of context of our Phantom Colt in New Guinea, but. I can put you in touch with uh, Chris Boylan, who's the authority on it, and I've, I've, um, I've checked a lot of the facts with him over this. I thank Chris out there. He's in France at the moment, about to launch an exhibition at Cannes, as I said. He has a couple of Phantom Shields there. Um, you may be able to Google up. I'm not sure. I'm sure, Richard, they're probably um, yeah. giving an overview of the exhibition, and uh, which would be interesting in itself. I'll let uh, Richard know when uh, Chris launches that 150-page book on the Phantom um, Shield, you might like to get a, a, few, a volume and raffle it or uh, use it at one of your silent auctions. And I'll also let you know about the Tribal Art Fair that we hold because a lot of those Phantom motifs keep showing up, not just on the shields, but on small sculptures and um, arm amulets and things like that. Thank hey, you. Thank you. Thank you. Well, for someone who warned me that she was not a great speaker, <laughs> that was really, really enlightening. Thank you so much. And um, I have a suspicion, wouldn't it be nice if no, you're not going to donate your shield for the next auction, are you? <laughs> okay, Don just wants to have a quick word with everyone. Thank you, Richard. It was a very pleasant surprise on my birthday in February. I'd just come out of hospital having prostate cancer and Geoffrey rolls up with Rita and he'd found out and he'd given me phantom paraphernalia before that. He walks in the door with this 1500 long thing, 400 wide, wrapped in paper and I didn't know what it was. And he opens it and my eyes go aghast. My wife says, what are you gonna do with that? <laughs> so it's a brilliant, it sits in my study with all my Phantom Paraphernalia and I really appreciate Jeff and Rita and getting that for me. It is a really beautiful piece of art, particularly when you love the Phantom. As I said, I'd like to join, the, join one of the tribes as Richard has pointed out to you. So I've got the grass skirt and everything else but it was minus four in Canberra yesterday morning when I left and I didn't think 
a grass skirt and a few other things on would be very suitable for tonight. The other thing I'd like to do too, our 31st dinner, I'd like everyone to put their hands together for the fantastic organisation that Richard does for every one of us. And secondly, for our auctioneer, who's, as you know, is all a doctor in Canberra and he's president of the local AMA, he's flown up here late tonight just to be with us wonderful, fantastic people, to be our auctioneer and earn lots of money for Westmead and then some god-godly hour in the morning. Richard's got to drive him back to the airport so he goes to his meeting. Antonio, thank you. Thanks, Don. Enjoy. Right, thank you very much. Um, just a quick reminder, there's still quite a few raffle tickets left. You know it's for a good cause. I decided not to display it, which may have motivated you more. I thought we'd better keep it in the tube so whoever wins it can just cart it off without any problem. Uh, I also uh, like to say that uh, I appreciate uh, Don Rowling's um, uh, thank you, and and also I appreciate his mention of, of um, Antonio uh, as, as as my partner in crime and, and all the work that he does. But let me tell you, it's very difficult for me. <laughs> I like this symbiosis. Um, I, I, tried every form of medication and nothing seems to work. <laughs> anyway, Antonio is going to introduce our guest, our guest speaker, so please relax and, and enjoy. Thank you so much, Richard. In the body of uh, the human species, Richard is the groin and I am the fungus. <laughs> and, uh, and together... Together we make a very unpleasant sensation. Uh, I recently, a couple of days ago, I took all my staff out to the movies. We watched the Elton John show, and, and there's a, it was really good. And, and there's a scene where he comes to Sydney. I don't know if any old blokes remember it. Elton came to Sydney to get married, married Renata. And, and I was an impressionable young man. I thought, oh, it's so romantic, it's so lovely. And, and, and that marriage uh, eventually revealed itself to be the complete sham that it was. And it's a, it's a lot like after the first 10 or 15 years uh, of this of this uh, group where uh, the, the idea that Richard and I shared the work became a complete farce like Elton's <laughs> marriage. Um, so I did some stats. I did some stats which uh, I'll promise I'll be brief. No, I won't. Fuck that. Um, approximately 365 days ago we had our last uh, fantastic gathering. It was a really great night. And, and at the end of it Richard and I uh, we're just uh, just about to sit down with Bronnie to have a, a, a celebratory coffee and 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 have a, a lovely talk about it. And I got that terrifying phone call that no parent wants to get. Oh, ambulance is at your daughter's room. You better get here now. So off I went. Everything was fine. She'd she'd had a, a seizure, but she was fine. And so I I picked her up in her room, went down four flights of stairs, and and walked her with the corridor monitor. A very lovely young man called James. Um, across the car park to Royal Prince Alfred Emergency where everything ended up fine. And we may have had a pretty good night and, and I was fairly chatty and I, over this 50 metres I got to know James pretty well and I said, you know, 
What do you do, James? He said, oh, I'm a medical student. Are you a nice boy, James? I think I'm a nice boy. Do you have prospects, James? Do you want a job? Do you want a career? Yes, I do. And I said, Anna, Anna, this bloke's great. What are you wasting your time? <laughs> and this poor post-dictal 18-year-old drunken girl just listing that. And I said, Anna, what are you, your mother and I are very worried that you've got a crush on this bloke called Squirter. <laughs> he may be a perfectly nice young man, but we are uncomfortable with you marrying a bloke with that name. What's wrong with James? He's lovely. He's lovely. And, and, and of course, what did she say? Dad, James is squirter. (laughs) And that was actually, believe it or not, that wasn't the low point of that evening. (laughs) Uh, She's being examined by the nurse who says, I think you might not have had a seizure. I think you might be drunk. And I said, listen, lady, I'm drunk. (laughs) She's... Anyway, <laughs> since that, since that, in that 365 days, I calculated I've worked 51 weeks. I've done 72 hours a week, of which 48 were paid. Um, I've done. Um, I've read 64 books. I've read 1,800 comics. I've been to 12 Raiders games, 12 Brumbies games, two Australian cricket tests, a bunch of hockey matches played by women of a certain age. Um, <laughs> I've been to 58 meetings, I've chaired 28 of them, I've given 64 speeches, I've done 80 radio interviews, 25 TV interviews, Uh, I've got, with four mates, every single child of Nauru. I've got a 24-hour strike service, a permanent pacemaker service, $5 million into mental health, and absolutely zero minutes into organising tonight. <laughs> absolutely nothing. Um, my, my father, my father uh, spent um, many years as a prisoner of war in the Second World War and he and his other Italian mates would often quote Mussolini. Uh, their favourite Mussolini quote was Armiamoci e partite which is let us arm ourselves so that you may fight. <laughs> and um, and, uh, and that's what it's like being in partnership with Richard. Um, uh, I will never, ever stop being grateful to have the best partner in crime there ever was. Um, um, uh, I'd also like to... Uh, He's only saying all this because he wants to be sure I'll take him to the airport at 5.30. <laughs> that's right. Um, uh, Rita, thank you for your magnificent speech. Absolutely first class. Um, I don't know if you know uh, a lovely friend of mine who I was out to dinner with this week called um, uh, June Verrier, who is a, she's the first uh, woman in Europe to get a degree in political science and she's the first person to get a PhD in PNG. Uh, she was a, a world authority on it and uh, um, I think she would love to meet you. Uh, <laughs> um, and... Um, I'd also uh, like to thank uh, Cathy Wilcox and the power of cartooning. Uh, I had a great day on Thursday, got home at 11 o'clock at night, and on the front page, uh, Peter Dutton called me a dickhead. And I felt... No, and I felt pretty sad and blue, and I woke up on Friday morning and Cathy Wilcox had done a cartoon that just made me so happy and just made me realise as if I needed to, the incredible power of editorial cartooning as well as syndicated cartooning, which is a great passion of all of us uh, here. Uh, I'd like to introduce our speaker tonight, 
Um, Jeff, uh, I think, Kim, perhaps you might refer to him as the ghost who works. Uh, uh, a man... <laughs> Uh, a man with uh, uh, an incredibly busy and long CV, which I'm not going to elucidate. He's going to do that himself. The most important thing for me to say to Jeff is thank you so much for honouring us by being here tonight. We really appreciate it immensely. And uh, we look forward to hearing from you. I'm a little surprised that after 31 of these guys, you guys have not yet realized the folly of asking a cartoonist to be a speaker because, you know, we live the life of Gollum from Lord of the Rings, right? We work in a cave somewhere all by ourselves working on our little precious. And so uh, we're not great public speakers, but uh, we'll see what happens here. So first thing I want to do is thank everybody for, for having me here and and Richard and Antonio and the Supernova people for giving me the opportunity of a lifetime to come over and meet all you folks and to see Australia for the first time and uh, to be basically treated like a king for a few days, which is, believe me, something I am not used to. Um, so you guys don't know me, to be honest. You know, um, I'm following the footsteps of guys like Paul Ryan and Graham Nolan and Terry Beatty Mike Manley and of course Cy Berry all these people had long careers in comics before they started on the Phantom and when they took over people sort of knew what to expect and I can sort of see I would expect that on uh, 2017 on Mother's Day when that first strip of mine showed up and the name Jeff Weigel was appearing below Tony DePaul's people were basically going who the hell is this guy you've never heard of me before so I'm hoping to give you a little bit of background along those lines. Um, I grew up in the middle of America, and I grew up reading the same comic books you guys did if you're of a certain age, all that Silver Age stuff, and uh, being inspired by all those characters, and uh, being like probably thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of other kids who read those things, looking at those drawings of people like Nick Cardi and Neil Adams and Jack Kirby and uh, Gene Cole and, and going, that's really cool. I wonder if I could do that. And that's sort of how I started on the path that I'm on. Um, so you're wondering how, I, how a kid like me from the middle of nowhere uh, landed a gig like The Phantom, such a sweet gig. And Honestly, the answer is kind of, I do not know how that happened. <laughs> but we're going to go through it a little bit and see if I can figure it out along with you. So, <clears throat> I, uh, I studied, in the 70s I studied graphic design. I, I had always wanted to be a cartoonist ever since I first learned to read. And I fell in love with the work of the guys I just mentioned and a lot of other people. And, uh, but... In the small town that I grew up in, there's not a lot of grounding in artist education. I mean, there was really nobody to talk to. And so when time came around for college, this guy who drew comics all the time wondered what to pursue as a career. And the closest thing I could find at the University of Illinois, where I went to school, was graphic design. I, I didn't even know what it was exactly, but I knew it was art-related. And it could be a job at the end of the day if everything else fell through. So I studied graphic design. 
And I also tried to do as much life drawing and things like that as I could uh, in that environment. And after I got out of school, the first thing I did was head to New York and try and get some work in the comic book industry. And uh, that, you know, I, what happened was that, uh, you know, I would go back and forth with them a little bit and they would say, eh, this work could be a little bit better. They liked it. One guy liked it, but the other guy didn't. And like that back and forth. And finally, um, I talked to, I know at one point, Dick Giordano, the famous editor at DC back then, and, uh, you know, he was complimentary. He thought maybe I need a little bit more work. And he thought I was close enough. And he told me that, you know, beginners here get about $30 a page. And at that point, I said, I cannot live on $30 a page when it takes me a full day to do that. And it's, I had sort of abandoned my, my dream of being a comic book artist at that point. And full time went into pursuing being a graphic designer. And my first job was actually two floors below DC Comics, right in Rockefeller Center there uh, in the Warner Building uh, as a graphic designer. Um, and my, that's the, per, the career that I pursued for years after that. Um, but, you know, I did that for, you know, from the early 80s on through for the next 30 years, but I always really loved comics. And I always really wanted to pursue that and so I just couldn't sort of stay away from it. I always had to sort of work on samples and, and try and send them into the big companies and uh, always at the, like, the worst possible times for one reason or another. You know, because, you know, I, I'd get up the gumption to make some new samples and I'd send them in and find out that, you know, they weren't looking for new talent at that particular time or they were and they'd say, oh, yeah, we really like your stuff and we're going to give you some work but it would fall through for one reason or another for political reasons in, in the companies. So for whatever reason, I never really got any work from those guys. In the, uh, in the 90s, there was a big boom in independent comic books in America. And this seemed like maybe an opportunity for me. And so I sent samples to those sorts of companies and found one that wanted to use me. And it was right at the tail end of that trend. And if you, if anybody is familiar with the comic book industry, around that time, just the time I had been hired to do a book for a small independent publisher, I thought that was my foot in the door. And uh, then the market fell through, and all of those independent publishers like disappeared overnight when the market collapsed for comics. Then, and I had done that first issue and never got paid for it, and it was never published. And you know, that was sort of the story of how I tried to get into comics at the wrong time all the time. Um, eventually, I hooked up with, uh, and if you guys know, Image Comics is the, like the third biggest comic book company. Uh, this was back in, still in the 90s, about mid-90s. I had, well, what, before that, I had actually tried to do, say, you know, if nobody wants to publish this, but I'm still going to do a comic book. I'm going to do a complete comic book. And that's how I created my character, the Sphinx. Uh, and you, I don't expect you guys to have heard of that, but it was something that I had done more to uh, sort of hone my skills and also as an answer to all the sort of gritty, uh, dark superheroes turn that the turn that characters were taking back then. <coughs> Uh, and it was, the Sphinx was sort of this bright, sunny, optimistic 
uh, straight arrow, sort of a superhero, kind of like the Phantom, oddly enough, right? This was always where my tastes lie. I was always a sucker for the straight arrows. So Superman, Captain America, and the Phantom, which is a character that I grew up in uh, during the Siberia years reading in my local newspaper, too. So he was an influence along with these other guys that I had talked about. So, like I said, for 30 years I worked on annual reports, and finally I got, uh, you know, as a graphic designer, and on the side I finally got my work published in Big Bang Comics, and that gave me a little bit of a reputation, but no money really. Uh, And so I decided to see if I could branch out into children's books. And I managed to get some work in children's books, a children's book published. Uh, And after that, I I got an actual children's book agent. And I uh, got some work through him, and I did my first graphic novel because he said, you know, you've done comics, and the market's sort of interested in comics for kids these days. So my first graphic novel was sold by the agent that I had for children's books. It was for uh, G.P. Putnam's Sons, and it was a... Uh, it was a historical novel about a boy's adventure in the British Navy during the Napoleonic Wars. So it's like the polar opposite of doing uh, a superhero comic, <laughs> right? Uh, but, you know, and the other part of the story that I should probably bring up is how I became a writer, too, mm-hmm. is that, uh, you know, during all this time of trying to find work in the industry and to find collaborators uh, within the, the independent market, I could never find a guy whose work I really wanted to draw. You know, when I get scripts, and I just go, you know, I don't like this very much. And I realized that the only way I was going to be able to draw something that I wanted to draw was if I was going to write it myself. And so the illustrator in me sort of got ki- dragged kicking and screaming into the, to become the writer. And um, that's how I ended up as a letterer for my books and for, as a colorist for my books, too, because I either couldn't find a collaborator or liked or couldn't afford a collaborator that I liked. And anyway, so this this book on the uh, Napoleonic Wars was published, and uh, it, I think it maybe sold three copies. I'm not sure. <laughs> but it did not do well. It, it went into the cutout bin almost immediately, as I recall. Uh, but I did seem to find work over and over again with my own projects. Um, I did... I really like the idea of comics for kids. And it seems to me that the general comics market isn't so geared for that anymore. Uh, you know, it's all like these 20 to 30 year old guys who are interested in uh, women characters with their suits maybe wedged a little bit too far <laughs> up. And uh, I didn't want to do that because I had two kids. And uh, I swore that there would never be anything on my drawing board that would make me ashamed for them to see it. <laughs> so, I, uh, let's see, what's, where was I? Um, so I'm doing children's books, right? Because I really want to cater to that market. And I managed to do a couple, to sell a couple of uh, kids' graphic novels because after doing the picture books, I sort of went back to that because that's really my first love is telling pictures with stories. I'm telling stories with pictures. And so I created Dragon Girl, about this uh, medieval girl who finds a cave full of dragon eggs, and as they hatch, they yeah, they turn out to be baby dragons. 
and she disguises herself as a mama dragon and starts taking care of them and ends up being swept by a real mother dragon and taken off to this valley full of all these different variety of dragons and sort of becomes this sort of dragon naturalist there who's studying all these different kinds and ends up having to protect them from a knight who wants to slay them all. And uh, that was very popular with kids. Uh, it didn't sell quite enough copies to, to warrant a, a, a sequel in the, in the publisher's mind. But I still get fan letters about that. And in fact, to my amazement, just today, I, I'm sitting at my booth at Super, Supernova, and this like 10-year-old boy and his dad are walking by, and they sort of stop and they look at the board behind me where there's a picture of Dragon Girl. And they, he, you know, they're sort of talking to each other, and the little kid comes up and says, thank you for Dragon Girl. I read that book and I really loved it. Here, on the other side of the earth. Uh, uh, that's really just the greatest reward of all time for somebody like me but to talk more specifically oh and uh, my latest book in that vein was quantum mechanics about these two alien girls who are uh, sort of junkyard mechanics on this asteroid out at the edge of the galaxy they like to take apart these old junker spaceships that have been abandoned there and try and repair them, and they get shanghaied by space pirates to work as the, the maintenance crew for their spaceship. Uh, so I really like to gear my work towards kids because I think that market is underserved in terms of quality comics. Um, but I'm going to talk to you a little bit about really how I ended up as this no-name guy who is working on the Phantom now all of a sudden. Uh, what happened was that um, back in the Great Recession, I got laid off along with a, leather, a lot of other 50-year-old graphic designers. And I basically thought my career was over. You know, I thought, I'm 50 years old, and I climbed the ladder and have been thrown off of it, and I don't know how... You know, I come back into the adult world. And so <clears throat> I, my only alternative really became was to pursue the thing that I loved, which was comics. And I knew that was going to be a hard road to hoe. And that I, I did a, a bunch of books and I submitted a lot of different things and I got a lot of different rejections and sort of climbed out of that hole over the last 10 years. Uh, but I'll tell you, doing graphic novels doesn't really pay an adult sort of a wage, unless you have a really big hit, which I, I did not. And I did everything I could to try and you know, build websites that would promote my work, that people could see new stories by me, things like that. And one day, just out of the blue, on Facebook Messenger, I get a message from Terry Beatty. And he says to me, um, I saw your work online, and don't tell anybody, but I'm leaving the Phantom. And I'm trying to, find to, I'm trying to help Kink Features find a replacement for me. Would you be interested in the job? And after my head exploded, I wrote back and said... <laughs> Yeah, that sounds like that would be a good fit for me. I think I'd like to do that. <laughs> and so what he said was, 
you know, uh, I'm going to be, I'm getting together like maybe six or half a dozen recommendations for the people at King Features Syndicate. Now, like I said before, everybody else who had ever worked on this strip had a rep, long reputation in comics. I did not. I was this very fringe figure who had been working on like children's books and things like that. So even though I had a lot of credits, they're not really super significant credits. It's not like I had a string of, of issues of Batman or Superman or the Avengers uh, on my resume. And I, so I figured, you know, he's going to put together six recommendations and they're all going to be people whose names they recognize. Uh, you know, I'm really thrilled to be, you know, under consideration, but I don't think I have a ghost of a chance. This is what I told myself. Uh, so I was, I was just honored to be there on the list, but didn't expect anything to come from it. And then on March 1st of 2017, I got a call from the King Features people, uh, the editor there at the time, and I figured, oh, this is my interview. Just, and so we talked a little bit, you know, and we talked about what I had done, and uh, I, don't, I actually don't remember a lot of the details of what we discussed, but I just figured, you know, we're just chatting, this is my first initial interview. And at the end of the conversation, she said, so when can you start? And I was like, excuse me? <laughs> they said, yeah, Terry's this far ahead, so we need to pick up as soon as you can. And I was like, okay, I will do that. <laughs> and I got off the phone, and I turned to Kim, and I said, I'm a new son of <laughs> To say the least, this turned my life around. Uh, in a very real way, my life was saved by the Phantom. A guy who just a few years before that felt like he had been thrown out of society had now gotten his dream job. And I also want to say something about the fact that if you guys admire my work, you should also know that half of the credit and half of your admiration for what's happening should go to her. <laughs> I would not be here. I would not be here except for her support during those hard years. Uh, she was the one who constantly told me not to give up uh, and that I could that I could do it and gave me permission to do it and supported me financially until I could do it. Uh, and so, that's sort of the story of how I ended up as the Phantom Artist, which is the greatest job I've ever known. Now, I want to make, I sort of end with a promise to you guys, okay? I have experience with my heroes being broken by writers and artists over the years. You know, I think specifically of back in the 90s, one of my favorite characters uh, throughout my childhood was Green Lantern. And one year, uh, DC... <laughs> yep, you know where we're going. Parallax. Yeah, that's exactly right. <laughs> Just a moment, I have to get some more medication. <laughs> I'm with you, Jeff. I'm with you. <laughs>
So, back in the 90s, they ran a storyline called Zero Hour. And to make a long story short, what they did was they took one of my most beloved characters and they made him a supervillain that basically destroyed, I don't know, killed a lot of people. Destroyed Cassini. Yeah, it was just... And I remember reading that issue and I was in tears. You know, I'm like 35, 40 years old. I don't know how old I was. But it was like... This is not right. Look what you did to my guy. And my daughter talks about this sort of thing, too. Now, she was a big... Uh, I can't remember whether it was Harry Potter or some Lord of the Rings thing, because she was enthusiastic about both. But she had seen something or another that had sort of abused her notion of who those characters were. And I just remember her very irately saying, they're messing with my stuff. <laughs> and that phrase stuck in my head. They're messing with my stuff. Well, here's my promise to you guys. I am not going to mess with your stuff. <laughs> I am not going to break your toys. You guys have a very treasured property in the Phantom. And I treasure it too. I grew up with it also. And I absolutely promise you that as guardian of your toys... I'm going to give it back to you as polished as I can possibly make it. And I will never bend it so far as to crack it or break it or make a mess of it. You can count on me. As long as I'm on this strip, I will not mess with your stuff. I will make it right. Thank you, Jeff, and, and thank you, Kim, the, the, uh, the uh, unspoken one. <laughs> um, it's dessert time, after which, once I hope that the medication has settled him down, uh, we'll, we'll have our auction. But in the meantime, there's still plenty of silent bidding to do. <laughs> thank you. For those of you who need to know, and I think it's absolutely none of you, uh, it was issue number 48, Green Lantern, uh, June 1994, <laughs> written by Ron Mars. Is that true? Yeah. It's the 25th anniversary. Uh, DC's putting out a big omnibus edition. I'm not buying it. <laughs> so just a reminder that in this next uh, section that we have coming up this is the friday afternoon panel conversation at supernova this is the uh the one we, we gave you the language warning on um it was friday at about five o'clock and and clearly some people had some jet lag um and kind of uh forgot the audience a little bit i suppose because there were some kids in the crowd it does tidy up um about 15 minutes in or so but uh anyway language warning on it don't listen to it with your kids in the car necessarily make sure that um the sound's down if you're listening to it uh at work, that sort of stuff. Also remember that uh, if you do hear any little rustling of packages in the background, especially while people who are not Jeff Weigel are speaking, that's because some fandom fans were getting bored with who was talking and getting excited with the cards that they had in front of them. All right, enjoy. As I said, you're not here to listen to me. You're here to hear about comics. And some of the people who go into the creation of these amazing art forms that we love so much. I can see a couple of people here with some pretty hefty boxes full of merchandise already. You've, you've been busy. 
Without any further ado, please join me in welcoming to the stage Simon Beasley, Humberto Ramos, Donny Cates, Megan Hutchinson, and Jeff Weigel. Get excited. We're a big deal. Check, check, check. already but some of them may know some of you and some of them may not know others I would love for us to start off by having you each introduce yourselves and talk a little about your favorite creations that you've had a hand in why don't we start up this end hello my name is Simon Bisley and I've created nothing <laughs> except I've, uh, I've uh, improved on a lot of uh, characters that existed um, I'm better known for Lobo, Slain, uh, ABC Warriors Pretty much that's it. It's my first time in Australia and uh, it's a privilege to be here. I'm, gonna, I'm having a great time. It's a privilege to have you here, Simon. Thank you, my dear, thank you. Uh, hi, my name is Humberto Ramos. I'm from Mexico and I work for Marvel Comics. And I've been doing uh, the Marvel Comics thing for the last 15 years or so. And uh, I'm currently in between jobs. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I was working uh, recently uh, over Spider-Man, but now I'm learning more. And it's my first time here in Australia as well, so I'm, uh, I'm so happy to be here. You know, uh, I walk, walk around yesterday to the opera uh, building and that's so, so cool. So uh, thank you guys for having me here. And let's have some fun. Yeah! Wow. Thanks for being here. Humberto is also the, the co-creator of Crimson, which is one of my favorite things of all time. Has a very a lot of influence on a very young Donny Cates. Absolutely. Vampire stuff, man. My name's Donny Cates. I write comical books for Marvel Comics. Um, I write... Um, I, I'm currently writing and have written uh, Thanos, Doctor Strange, The Inhumans, Guardians of the Galaxy, Venom, is I'm still doing that one. I'm currently writing Silver Surfer and Venom. Um, uh, lots of indie stuff too. Yeah, and like these guys, I think probably everyone up here, I don't know if Jeff's been here before, but this, I think this is all of our, all our first times here. So far, it's amazing. I'm from Texas, and it kind of reminds me a lot of, of Texas. Woohoo, that's all right. Yeah. And this is my uh, lovely fiance. Hi, Megan Hutchison. Um, I. Oh, thank you. I'm covered in lint. Um, I do a lot of indie stuff. Um, I'm wrapping up a series with Image right now called Rockstars. Uh, and I do a lot of cover work. Um, so we have an indie and a big two in our household. So good balance. And we were unaware that we look like twins. Uh, <laughs> I, think it, I, I think it's on we're purpose. Like, we're like Malfoys. Yeah. yeah. I think it's very appropriate for us. Cool. Yeah. Um, I'm Jeff Weigel. I, uh, I created the Phantom back in 1936. <laughs> 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 you look great. <laughs> 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 
Now, actually, I, I do work on the Phantom. I am the current Sunday strip artist for Phantom for King Feature Syndicate. Uh, before doing that, and also during that, I've also been creating uh, graphic novels for kids, things like uh, Dragon Girl and uh, Quantum Mechanics, uh, published by Lion Forge and uh, Andrews McNeil in the United States, and a bunch of other things too over the years. Now we've established that many people on stage have worked with characters that were created before they got their hands on them, but we also have some people who have created characters from scratch. What are some of the challenges that come along with working on a character that was created previously that you're taking over, and how do they compare to challenges that come with creating a character that you have envisioned? So let's let's pick a designated starting point when we do these things, because otherwise we're just gonna. I'm just thinking. Start I'm just thinking. I'm still thinking on that one. Actually. Okay, you wanna start over here? Okay. okay. Um, well, doing the phantom. This was sort of a daunting task because I'm following the footsteps of the great Siberian, who so many people learned from as they were growing up. He's one of the great uh, strip artists of all time and one of the great makers of all time. And that's who everyone thinks of when uh, they think of the Phantom. And you know, past his time, a lot of other people filled those shoes too. And so uh, it's a, a very intimidating task to take that on. And um, I hope I'm doing a good job at it. And uh, as far as creating my own characters, I guess the hardest part of that is just having to find publishers and sell them to sell them to who want to publish them. And so uh, I don't find creating my own stuff very difficult. It's just you know finding a marketplace for them after I've, I've come up with them. Um, I haven't really had the opportunity to take over someone else's character. Um, I've been lucky too because I've created a lot of my own characters, which is awesome. Um, the problem I have is I get in my own way. Whereas if I'm working with someone who has created a character or um, I'm doing an interpretation, I do a lot of like cover work and stuff. And so usually they're just like dried in your style because I have a pretty distinct style. Um, you know, and so like I get to do my kind of like visual interpretation of of that character, and that's super, super fun for me, unless um, you're Saban and you don't like the way I draw Goldar and I had to redraw it 28 times, so. But, very nice people. Um, so I like, I, you know, there's there's a really, that, there's something nice about both, you know, and it's kind of nice to have that balance, like be able to do both. Um, yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah, I mean you, you know, you take over characters that have, you kind of grew up reading, and I, I'm, I, I never, people ask me sometimes like how much research I do uh, when going into writing like a Venom or a Guardians of the Galaxy or anything like that, and the answer is a lot and none, because I've been doing the research since I was four years old. I've been doing, I've been, I've never not read an issue of Venom or Spider-Man uh, or Thor or like any of my favorite characters. Um, and so I go into them kind of, I, 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 I have found for the most part I've been able to I instinctually know what Eddie Brock sounds like, except I grew up with that character, right? Um, and so, that honestly, it's just an honor. I, I try not to get too much in my own head about it, because um, I, I am sometimes following uh, some of my favorite writers in the world on these titles. Uh, like uh, Doctor Strange, I, I followed Jason Aaron, who is the greatest writer on Earth, um, and he's my favorite writer, and eventually, I psyched myself out so much that I had to finally just say, 
you know, he's not writing it. I am. I have to do this, and like, I, I can't worry about him. You know, I have to make it my own, right? And so you kind of have to do that. It's a combination of that and also understanding and feeling the weight of, like you were saying, with, like, with the Phantom, of, of, of you kind of, you're, you're putting your toes into an, an, in, like an infinite ocean <laughs> that'll be there, that was there before you, and that'll be there after you, and it's just, it's an honor to be able to add your piece to that. Um, as far as creating your own characters, I've had a interesting time with that because I, I I create my own characters all the time and like image with my image books and like aftershock books and stuff like that. But then I've also had the pleasure of being able to create new characters out of Marvel that have stuck around, um, which is a feat, you know, inventing new characters at Marvel that'll stay, you know. Uh, so Cosmic Ghost Rider is a character that I created. I say created, I just got two toys and like smashed them together until they were this new thing, right? Um, and so it's just bizarre, it's bizarre, because now there's like a Marvel character that like editors can't tell me that I'm doing wrong, you know? Because I'm like, well no, I'm the only person who's ever written it, so I'm God. <laughs> well, I'm going to guess they tell you you're doing it wrong every once in a while, just to keep their hand in. Uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, editors love put it, turning a ten into a seven just to have their fingerprints on stuff, right? Um, yeah, it's fun. It's funny. A fan, a fan came up to me in like Seattle, and he was like, "How much research have you had to do to write Cosmic Ghost Writer?" And I was like, "What do you mean?" I was like, "I created." And he was like, "No, you didn't." I was like, "What? What are you? What, what are you doing right now?" Of course I did. And he was like, "Look, it was a whole thing." Anyway, it's bizarre. It's fun. You. <laughs> Well, um, as Andy said, it's, it's always an honor to put your hands on um, a character that you grew up with. Like, uh, to me, it was Spider-Man. I, I started being a comic book fan because of Spider-Man in the first place. And I used to um, take a, you know, after finishing the, the, the comic book, reading the comic book, I take a, a, a piece of paper and I take a pencil and I'm trying to, you know, follow the stories and draw it myself. And then, you know, uh, after a bunch of years being able to draw it for, for real and knowing that, like, in every country that the, the, the book is published, it's your drawings that what people is, is uh, reading. It's quite a thing, you know, being able to, to well, travel around the world just because you, you draw these characters is, is pretty impressive for me. So um, that's a great thing. And uh, but but also uh, uh, there's it comes with this problem that you are drawing after all these people that you admire, and you don't want to drop the ball, and you don't want your editor to to think that they took the wrong uh, choice, you know, with you. So uh, it's it's always a, uh, a bit of a uh, competition with yourself to make it look the best the best as possible. And and you never get to uh, make it look as you want it to 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 be. But uh, but you are quite you know quite close, and that's 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 good enough at least for. The editor and people, and uh, you know, and they're happy. You're happy, but you still know that there's there's a job to be done, and, and that you can always improve the next day. On the uh, career on thing, it's 
I feel a little easier to do that because I feel like playing, playing God a little bit. You know, in a, uh, I've never tried to, to come up with any superhero uh, character at all because I kind of feel like they're all out there. Nobody wants to read a comic book of, or, well, that's, that's my feeling. A new superhero, you know, created by me, but they might think, I, I think that people might want to read stuff uh, that I create that are, that has nothing to do with superheroes, like vampires or, or, or goblins or magic or like, like the books that I've done. I, I did this book, Revelations, that I, uh, I wanted to do something with the Antichrist and, you know, the real uh, evil, the devil and, and the church and all these things that I grew up with. And they have nothing to do with, with superheroes. I, and I feel that I that I that these are stories that I know, characters that I know, even they're they weren't created for. And I feel more fun to, to do those. And because nobody was gonna tell me, you know, if I didn't write or wrong, it's just a story that I that I write. That's it. Uh, as far as, I, for, uh, as far as I go, I like to take a character and make it my own. Uh, mostly because I can then hide my uh, inefficiencies and lack of talent in certain areas. So I'm not really a great comic book artist. I just like to take characters further, much further than they would normally be taken, to the point where I'm, I'm un un unemployable. So I just take things too far and say, it's just gone too far with yourself. Fuck them anyway. But um, I've done three characters that designed for uh, Deathlock. And uh, the character died in each each, each book. <laughs> they last they last about three panels. <laughs> fucking great, so that's my success. So I'm a fucking disaster. But no, it's a privilege to uh, it's an absolute privilege to, to do with uh, you know, any character that all, all my heroes have done before. It's a privilege. It's amazing. It's a real buzz. That's it. That's my story. Lovely story. We are a PG panel, but there is oh, a I'm not anymore. You're not. Okay. Yeah. Um, and, I am, and I am God. <laughs> now, I am going to ask another question, but I know that there are probably questions from the audience here. So if at any point you do have a question you'd like to ask of our wonderful creators, please put your hand in the air and wait for me to run to you. Give me some exercise. I'll hold a microphone in front of your face for you. Wonderful. Now, we have obviously seen a huge change in the way that comics and comic characters have been represented to the wider world over the last, I would say, 15 years in particular. How has the evolution of the way that comic characters are being presented changed the way that the comic book industry uh, works, in your experience? I mean, I... Go for it. I mean, I got a lot of opinions on it, but um, I just... Go ahead. I, I don't have a lot on that. I'm, my work does not have anything to do with the, Billy um, Zane? With the movies, really. Have well, you yeah, found sure, that it's got that, more that popular? Yeah, yeah, I know. So I don't, I don't have anything, even though I created it in 1936. <laughs> yeah, right. I skipped the Billy Zane. <laughs> um, but, you know, uh, aside from the Phantom, uh, who just has a slight movie uh, focus from 20 years ago, I don't really have to worry about that too much. And for my own creations, uh, nobody's ever approached me about making movies out of those things. And I just think in terms of telling the story in comics form in a way that's engaging and that uses the art form well. And uh, don't worry about larger matters. 
Do you find that uh, the popularity of comic book characters has negatively or posi positively impacted the amount of interest in comic books themselves? Well, not for me too much because my creations are things that people have never heard of before, and they're mostly for kid, the kids' market too, which is pretty different than what these guys, particularly Simon, have been dealing with. <laughs> I love that we have the two different ends of the spectrum here on either side. <laughs> yeah, we're going to arm wrestle later on. <laughs> Any other thoughts? I, I just, yeah, yeah, oh yeah. So the, I will say the only thing that has really changed. Um, and I don't mean this in a negative way, so please take it in the spirit it's intended. The only thing that's changed is that people ask that question now, you know? Um, but we don't worry about the movies. Like, they chase us, we don't chase them, you know? So, like, if we if we started, like, people think that it's the other way around, right? People, like, like a good example is when the last Thor film came out in the comics, uh, you know, he cut all his hair off that, in that last one, right? And in the comics, Thor all, all of a sudden had short hair, right? People think that it was us trying to mirror the films, but it's not. It's the complete opposite way around because we have these Marvel summits where there's like 12 of us that are exclusive, and you've been, you were at the last one, right? That was fun. And then um, in that room is a big round table, and it's all the writers and artists that are, that are exclusive. But then around that are like the movie guys, and the TV guys, and the theme park guys, and the toy guys, and all that stuff. And so those things where it looks like we're lining up, they're lining up with us. Like, they are sitting in the corner as Jason Aaron is talking about Thor, and they're being like, okay, cool, cool, go, 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 go. So, like, yeah, we don't think about it. Like, now there, now there are certain things that are kind of indelible that you, you'd be a fool to not, to not emulate a little bit, right? Like, Downey's portrayal of Tony Stark is just Tony Stark now, no matter what, and we can't fight it. Right? That's just what that's going to be. But like on the other hand, that Venom film came out, and as the writer of Venom, I ain't never going to write it like that. You know, like he's just—that's just not Eddie Brock, and I'm not going to do it. So, um, you know. <laughs> so yeah, I mean, sometimes yes, sometimes no. But for the most part, we're we're apples and oranges. You know. It'd be like asking if the if the people who make trading cards care. Does that work? I feel like this Do the athletes care about the trading card company? Does that work? Is that, is that, is that good? That's not good. No, that's not good. Um, as far as I'm concerned, I, I don't, I don't consider it. And anything I say, I'm just, I'll just be talking for, you know, around me for no reason. So I'm gonna make, I'm gonna say anything for, I'm not gonna say anything just for the sake of it. So no, I've got nothing to say. <laughs> what it is, you know. That is totally fair. Um, I don't want to step on anyone. Any. Okay. No problems. Now we've had some mentions of editors and the way that editors can uh, influence, <laughs> influence the way that the story and the art uh, comes out in the end. Uh, can you tell me an example of a time when you've had to make a change that you didn't agree with because an editor told you it had to be done? Yeah, make him make Batman's ear shorter, make him look less aggressive and psychopathic, and which is ridiculous, isn't it? Um, I usually ignore everybody, I don't care, fuck them, they think they don't like it, whatever, they, what am I going to do? What can I do? You know, so, fuck them. Pardon my language. I've been working with the same editor for the last eight years, so I, I, I pass on the question. <laughs> yeah, I want the name name. Yeah, because it's yeah. easy to narrow down for you, right? Yeah, the Finnish mutual thing. He follows me on Twitter, so I Yeah, that's the thing, right, is that, like, you know, um, like for instance, like when I do my image books and I do stuff like that, I never hire an editor. I never. I know a lot of people do, 
Um, but I have spell check on my on my computer. <laughs> you know, I don't need. I'm, I'm not gonna hire somebody to, to tell me that my stuff's bad. Like, there's already Twitter for that. Um, you know, I, I generally tend tend to trust my own gut and like. I don't know. Like, I guess, yeah. There's been some changes that I, I agree with. I I do a book called Redneck, and I in like the third issue, I wrote the most incredibly violent sequence. It's, it's about a family of vampires, right? And one of their own gets killed, and uh, they know that the guy who they what they think did it. This is how I wrote it. It was like a third issue, and these two brothers, uh, Seamus and Greg, right? And what the sequence was originally was they knew that this guy was killed their brother, and he's in this church. But they're vampires, so they can't go into the church. And so this guy's like taunting them. And how I wrote it was, they they say, "All right, well, we'll be right back." And this church is filled with people, and so they go. And the next thing you know, they're in a truck filled with barrels of gasoline, and they drive it up the steps, jump out of it, it explodes into the church, and they pull out a shotgun and just set everyone on fire. And so as they're like coming out burning, they're like killing them. And my editor was like, "Donnie, these are the good guys." And I was like, all oh, right, <laughs> like, like they're gonna hate these people forever now. I was like, yeah, all right. So like little things like that. I thought it was, I'm probably gonna do it eventually. But then like I get away with murder. I'll draw it. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, um, I get away with murder in Marvel some sometimes. I mean, I wrote a, a Thanos story in which the Silver Surfer gets impaled on Thor's hammer because Thanos tells him that he's gonna kill him with 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 Mjolnir. And Surfer's just like, you can't, you're not going to be worthy of it. And he's like, yeah, I know. And he drops it and then just pushes his head on the handle. Um, that's a Marvel comic that I did. And, like, no one blinked an eye at it, you know? So, I don't know. You punched a baby in the face? I did. I had a guy punch a baby in the face uh, in a Marvel comic. Put a gun to a baby's head one time. Uh, but then, like, you know, like, Baz puts a, puts, shows Bruce Wayne's dick and everyone freaks out. Yeah. I don't know where the line is, man. <laughs> um, but for the most part, I will say honestly, I've been really fortunate that most of my editors, like the Spider-Man office, we both work in the Spider-Man office, and they're great. You know, um, they pretty much just leave me and Stegman alone on Venom and just say, "Go, have fun." You know, it, it makes things a lot easier when your book sells real well. They tend to leave you alone. You know about that. Yeah, I know. Yeah. <laughs> uh, the eighth uh, in Spider-Man is it's. It's in the first marker, so uh, you can talk. Yeah. So whenever you go goes to a place that uh, they ask you things that might be uh, figured in you know in a better way from a different way, and you talk you talk about them, explain why why you think this is uh, should be this way right. instead of their way. Yeah, I think they most most of the time they understand like yeah. Oh, I've I, 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 I had very few instances of them just like laying the law down and saying you're going to change this. It's always a conversation. I mean, I've had those <laughs> for sure. Um, but yeah, it's you know it's a big company. Ultimately, they're in charge. You know, end of the day, you just sometimes you just really got to be honest with you. You have to buy the bullet. Yeah. If I'm employed, they're employing me. They give me money to do what their character and how they visualize it. I mean, obviously, if you go too far, you go too far. But end of the day, just like you, you want to be employed. But don't be a difficult person. Right. You're not made your soul. If you've written it, like you're saying, if you've written it, you know, I'm in charge of it. I'm, I'm going on this project. You can't tell me how the character is or the story to go. But generally, you know, I'd, I'd, I'd suggest to anybody, just if you're going to do it, if you're employed to do something, do what they require. That's what just But it. also, it's criticism, and then fine. Just roll with it. Just roll with it. Don't worry about it. Do something. Live for, live for another day. 
but, but, uh, but also there's a, there's a fine line between those two things, right? Of course, like you, sure, should, yeah, yeah. You, you should also not roll over. Like you should, you oh, should. No, you're not. No, you're not. You know, no, no, of course not. Yeah. Don't be difficult, right? But fight for the things that you want. So I've had times where they've bucked up at me about something, and I've been able to explain it. Like, no, no, no I'm doing this because of X, Y, and Z, and this, and this, and this. And they'd be like, oh, okay, well, that makes sense then, right? So, you know, don't roll over, but also, you know, don't be a dick. Well, I also think <laughs> that sometimes it's good to have an outside perspective. I know you, you and I have this conversation about that, but like sometimes you're so close to a project that you have to have someone be like, mm, you can't, like, that doesn't make sense, or like, don't, don't do that. I, I accidentally drew a 10-year-old making out with someone. And my editor was like, you know she's 10. I was like, oh, yeah, so I'm going to take that out. <laughs> that was my first book I did with Arkea. Oh, it's such a long story. Because I, I forgot. Yeah, we'll talk later. Yeah. <laughs> I thought I was writing this really romantic thing. But because... <laughs> I'm so close to this project, I and mean, it's the, the first book I ever did called Will of the Wisp, we did with Arkea, and like, I was so close to this project, and like, co like, co-created it with my writer and all this stuff, and I think by the time I got to that point, I just had lost all of sense recognition about anything that was happening anymore. Yeah, well, that's the thing, is that she's right, because like, at a certain point, you work on something for so long that you lose object permanence on it, like, you don't... Like, if someone told you it was great, you would believe them, and if someone told you it was horrible, you would believe them. Like, you just, you've looked at it for too long. And so in that sense, it is great to have, I just turned it a new number one that I'm just, I'm, I'm worried sick over at Marvel, because it's the biggest thing I've ever done. And in that instance, I've just been, I've been banging the door down ever since I turned it in, just be like, please, please tell me if this is horrible. Like, please, I, I, I have no idea if it's horrible or not, you know? It's not, it's dope. It's but. great. <laughs> and also in my, I should, I'm not, that sounded so bad what I said. She, oh, was, kissing, she was kissing another 10 year old. Okay. <laughs> Moving on. Hi. I don't know what the question is. Oh, oh. Editors, are they good or bad? Editors. Uh, you know, I, I'm, when I'm working on Phantom, uh, I have never had an editor even whisper any comment to me at all. They've just taken whatever I sent over their threshold without any comment at all. Yeah. So, uh, it's really surprised me, to be honest. With it. Are the licensors that, that good, too? Pardon? Are the licensors that good, too? Are, is it, do you deal with them at all? No, no, not really. Really? Man, that's awesome. Yeah. Uh, so, and then, but I do feel like I need some sort of a, a, a stop, someone to look over my shoulder to make sure I'm not doing something stupid. And so, I always send my layout to the writer. Tony DePaul, who's been writing Phantom for 20 years. And just give him a chance to look it over. He almost never says anything other than that's great, go ahead. But every once in a while he'll say, you know, maybe this is not a good idea to show him this way or that way. Or, or he'll find some little mistake that I've made. And I'm always grateful for that. And then I can fix it in the finished version because he's commenting. I, I show him the layout and when I'm finished with the strip, before I send it to the syndicate, I'll send him the finish too. So he can just look at it both ways and make sure that we're both on the same page in terms of what I've done. Uh, in terms of my own graphic novels, uh, I've had editors try and, you know, after I submit a proposal to them, I've had them try and turn something, you know, 180 degrees. And then it's always a matter of whether I want to walk away and send it to somebody else or whether 
uh, I say, well, you know, that's a good idea, and I'm going to incorporate that, or you know, I'm going I'm to rebuild it for them for the purposes of making them happy. If I'm still happy with it, then they can publish it. Well, there's two different kinds of editors, right? There's um, the, there's, there's real deal editors who have a passion for that for that skill set and are very good and very helpful. Yeah. And then there's people who failed out of being writers or artists and still want to be writers. Yeah, I've worked with both of them. Yeah, and those are the bad ones, right? Because the ones who still want to be writers want to want to they want to write it for you. And you, I mean, I've I've had not at Marvel, but I've had to I've had to buck up at a at an editor be, before and say like. Do you want to do this? If you want to do it, do it. But don't hire me to do it if you're gonna, you know. So like, you get one of those, you, and you know if you have one on your hands pretty quick, you know. Now, Donny, you actually mentioned Twitter as part of your response to that question. I know it was a while ago, but uh, I promise you did. Okay. Um, it's an interesting point to bring up that Twitter has become almost like an immediate direct line to feedback from the viewers that we may not have had before social media, at yeah. least not in quite so significant amounts. Do you take into account any of the responses that you get on social media from fans when you're creating your work? No. No. Uh, you, uh, creating by committee is always the worst, it's the, it's the fastest way to make the worst thing possible. Um, you know, it, look, if someone has a vision, uh, you can like it or dislike it, but asking a person to, to change by vote is just antithetical to the process of making art. It just is. Um, and, and also, it's a little bit of a flawed process, right? Because by the time they have a product in their hands to critique, unless they provide the means of time travel, there's nothing for me to do about those critiques. Because the book's done. Like, it's, what would you like me, like people tweet at me and tell me that they didn't like the art in getting something. Like, well, what would you like me to do with that information? I can't, I can't change that. But also, opinions can be quiet and inside your head sometimes, too. Those are also fine. Um, but, you know, this, this always sounds mean. It always comes off meaner than I want it to, but it is the truth. It is not our job to give you what you want. It is our job to tell you what you want. Right? Uh, because if we all just started doing exactly as we were asked, then, then you wouldn't have surprising things, you wouldn't have innovative storylines. And there's this pervasive uh, sentiment that happens on Twitter all the time that I despise, where someone is this idea of entitlement that uh, is kind of in the way of, 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 of like story-based progress. And by that, I mean there's this sentiment that people say of, who asked for this? So like they'll announce a new Star Wars prequel or something, and people will be mad. You'll see comments like, "Well, well, well who even asked for this?" Well, you know what people didn't ask for? Star Wars. Like we don't give you things you ask for. Like we show you new things, we invent things. No one ever asks for anything that's new and in, in like and great, right? It's that's our job, you know. And we're gonna fall down sometimes. Sure, we're gonna make some bad things, but we've all made a commitment to failing in public. And you have to allow that. You have to, because that's how you get new and beautiful things. So, no, I don't listen to anybody. Right. No, I don't. I don't it, does, I don't. it doesn't bother me at all. I have no interest in whatsoever in, in what goes on out there and in the world. I'll do what I do and ask you to take it or leave it. Yeah, I mean, people might believe that we follow their lead. We don't. You know, most of us, we don't really. Uh, how to say it? pay no much attention of uh, what they say, the good things and the bad things. Because if you go to the other side where, of course, you, you have all these powers that 
that that like your work and they like it a lot sometimes and they think like you are like the best thing ever and you are not i mean you you know you are you have this quality that uh, allows you to be a professional and uh, and have a job every day but you know you are not the best or at least i believe that most of us we we know what we are standing right the thing is they're, they're not ever saying anything surprising like when you say that something i did sucked I, I was the first person to ever know it sucked like <laughs> i was there when it started sucking you know so like you're not telling me anything new you know and uh um, there's also fear of getting wounded as well so yeah. when i say i don't want it because i'm like oh, i'm so sensitive i can feel mortally wounded sometimes and that distracts me so much that i want vengeance and i get angry and i want to kill them so um <laughs> I can't, because they're making them think like F your emotions, I know they are, it's a way of digging at you, a way of undermining you regardless, you know. Yeah. So um, just to preserve my precious heart, I just don't read anything. That's it, that's only one person in t on Twitter that I listen to, it's at N uh, under, under dash low, that's, oh, that's yeah, him. Yeah. That's, that's his that's, editor, that's Nick yeah. the amazing Spider-Man. And that's, that's the one person that I really should listen. I'm guessing yeah. he doesn't usually give you feedback on Twitter, though. No, he has a positive feedback. Sometimes, yeah, yeah. He thinks I'm a cool person. Yeah. That's the thing. But, so what well, I believe that. What, you, what you're saying is that, like, you know, you, you, they, they can't, can't, at the end of the day, we create art for ourselves. I mean, we, we do work on these big properties that essentially belong to everyone, right? And they're, they're not our characters. But at the same time, we are all telling our own stories. And that's what we're hired to do, you know. Um, and so you can't, you can't get in your head with the bad stuff or the good stuff. You know, you can't absorb the, the good stuff that much either because you just have to put your head down and tell your story. But you should, you shouldn't. But it's all they do. I'm question. Yeah. <laughs> well, I think too, though. I notice it more with him than with me. But like, when when you're on Twitter and you're angry about a fictional character uh, and you're angry at the person who is writing or drawing that fictional character. Like, are you enjoying yourself? Like, either don't, you know, read that anymore, or like, There's a guy don't who enjoy it. Like, if you're not enjoying it, then go away. And I feel like, because people feel like they have to have an opinion all the time, that it's just like, and are you just spite reading? Right. Like, that's This guy who wrote into every single issue of Red Hand, every single issue, and told me how bad it was. And I, I eventually emailed him back. I eventually printed it in like issue like 22. I printed his thing and I was like, hey, buddy, you don't, I, I feel like my art's not making you happy. Like, are you okay? Like, <laughs> do you want to stop reading it? Is someone making you read it? Like, blink once if you're trapped. You know, like, just walk away from it, dog. Like, I don't want to make you unhappy. Just don't, don't do it anymore. Uh, here's, a, here's a dissenting opinion. Okay? <laughs> I'm working on a character that's got an 80-year history. I've got literally millions of readers every Sunday morning, and they expect a certain thing from the thing. Now, I, I have to admit, I'm not writing it. I'm just depicting it. But I look at myself as a craftsman who is trying to polish somebody else's toys. Okay, this is really important to me that I not break this important toy that these people have grown up with. And so I am. I do. There's a I don't pay any attention to Twitter. So I don't know if I'm getting good comments or bad comments there. But there is a comment section on King Features uh, Sunday Strip on, online. 
and there are, you know, we get a hundred comments there every week. And I read them all every week. And some of them are just people being cranky. But there are, there are certainly, when I read through these things, I find things that they go, yeah, that guy's kind of right. I'm going to be more careful about that. Especially in, in the treatment of you know, how I depict long-time characters. If, if there's a consensus of opinion that I'm not drawing Diana right, I'm paying attention to that. And I'm going to fix it the next time. Because I have a strong commitment not to break these toys that have been put in my charge. Yeah, as far as I'm concerned, as uh, uh, the whole Twitter thing goes and everything else, I just let my fans deal with it. So I can pack of walls, that's a town of pieces regardless. You know. <laughs> so I let them deal with it. So there are enough loyalty and enough good people out there are gonna can deal with it for me. I like breaking toys. <laughs> <laughs> so we're not gonna give you any of our toys. We have a question here. What's your name? Andrew has a question. Uh, yeah, so I just want to pick up on something Jeff said there about this idea of continuity. I think um, comics, the distribution model hasn't fundamentally changed in a long time. Like, you still have floppies, you still have a Sunday strip, you still have 2000 AD. Um, do you think with the way the technology's changed, there's going to be any significant changes in the way the comics are distributed in the future? Distributed? It's going to be a holdout. The answer, as far as I'm going, is beats me. I don't know. Yeah, I, I, I'm probably the same way. I mean, if I knew what the future was going to hold it and I'd invest in it, you'd be a billionaire and stop writing. Because um, I don't know. I mean, obviously, the digital thing is is, is getting bigger every year, right? Um, I could see a model getting closer to, like, a European model where I could I could really easily see it within my lifetime uh, moving away from floppies and, and just putting out... Like a, like a UK format of just like traits, you know, I could see that happening for sure. I kind of think the periodical thing is doomed eventually. Right, yeah. Well, it's hard to, I mean, with a, in a world where Netflix is there, that you're paying $9 a month and getting everything, it's, it's a hard sell these days increasingly to ask for $4 for 22 pages of a story right. every month, right? Um, so, you know, it's, but here's the thing though. Everyone always speaks of these things as doom and gloom about the comic industry going away and everything, right? Comic books are immortal, and they're always going to be there. It, it's I just going to change, right? It's, it, but you know, we're, we're the only industry that that, that that always talks about our own extinction. We're, we're the only one, you know. And it's bizarre because people were making claims that we were going to go away when comics stopped, when they went from being a dime to a quarter. It was like well, the end. No one's going to pay a quarter, you know. And so it, it just it just always moves, right? Um, I will say this, like I. In my work, I use a lot of double-page splashes and, and, and spreads and everything. And I've been told uh, by, by a few people sometimes that like I should stop doing that because on an iPad, like, the auto-rotation things, it like, messes up the story. And to me, I'm not... They need to fix their format. I'm not going to break my format. I'm not going to like change... I'm not going to get rid of my tools because they can't figure out how to adapt it, you know? And so stuff like that is... You know, I, I know Tom King loves his nine-panel grid, partly because if you're doing um, the the guided view on a phone, every panel is the exact same size as a phone, which is smart, right? But I don't do the nine-panel grid thing. I, I, I blow shit up, so I don't know how to do it. You know? 
I just think all the, I think all the formats will just live along each other, not, not alongside each other, you know, some kind of harmony. I, I do believe that. I think it's the same with digital art. I mean, people still use, uh, uh, do it organically, still use paper, still use some process. Either way, it all ends up on computer one way or another on the screen. Whatever it ends up, I think you still have the, the guts, the real art and the real art, dare I say. You still have the, the art, actual art, original art, and I think you still have the, the floppies. You know, I think the only reason might be given ecological reasons is a bad idea. It's not probably have, you know, forest and shit. No, they just make it out of uh, something else, like trash. Because you just full of trash anyway, isn't it? But um, no, I'm joking. But it's still recyclable, you could, I don't know. I think it'll exist. We can have the comic book right in front of us. I do very strongly believe that people want to possess something coming in their hands. They do absolutely, yeah. We, forever we want to read a, a novel. Right. I want that book in our hands. I want Dracula. I want Dracula in my hand. You know what I mean? Or if you're religious, you want, you, want, you, want, you want that religious book in your hand. You know, it's just real to you. They're tell us. Yeah, that's the power of the art. I mean, I can, I can, I'm not saying it's going to be this way, but I can see uh, monthly books going uh, just direct to uh, digital, and then the collection goes uh, published. Uh, I mean, I, I, I could see it that way. I'm again, I'm not saying it's going to be the way because. Uh, and we're the wrong people to ask. Like honestly, like like we don't we don't know anything. Like that's a that's that's corporate cats stuff. So like we you know we're just we're guessing as much as you guys are. Well, floppies are random. I mean, you got to remember comics are just some of people browse and find. If you're yeah. saying you got to find it, it's digitally. Then you can have it as a comic book. Then you're you know yeah, you're, 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 you're 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 cutting a, you're cutting off uh, with How people many? who would possibly find it to stumble upon it. You right. can't stumble upon it, you know. How many times have you found a new book because you went to the comic book shop and you're just walking around and you're like, oh, what's that? You kind of cut down that by by just going to digital, right? You I walked to a car, walked to a world tour with when I was a kid, and I saw, uh, saw a kind of the barbarian, so I saw it go, and I thought, what the hell is this? Well, that's how we've all found yeah, comics, yeah, right? Exactly. You say, who is that? Oh, that's Spider-Man. Yeah, and yeah, right? you create your life then, that, that, that formed it. Formed right. us, yeah. I, um, I actually worked on this really interesting project recently. I think... Um, uh, comics will always kind of be where it is because books, we have, you know, you want to have books and stuff, but I think it's going to also evolve and kind of start spreading out into other things. Like, I know people that are making comics with like a completely interactive soundtrack. I know people that are developing VR based on comics. Like, so I think that that's going to start spreading out. Um, I just did uh, a comic page for the pop star named um, Ingrid Michaelson. Um, and so she hired, each of us had to take a song and make a comic page out of it, and then um, that's going to be animated. And so uh, when her album drops, you're going to be able to go online and watch like an animated comic based on this song, and each song is a different artist. And so it's just like, that's cool like that we can do that now. Well, it becomes more accessible to the thing is because it's to do with money. Once the technology is cheap and it's accessible to everybody, but all to the extent free, then any, so available to anyone to do to do this. You know, and when we're not just specialised, when there's so, many, so much talent out there and so much ability that uh, you know, when we're not elites, so we're not elite. There's so many of you can do this as well. Yeah? Yeah. In that format we're talking about, which is amazing. Yeah. And there's always different ways and different ideas to take to approach it. So it's limitless, isn't it? As you say, yeah. this is that's why it remains and stays alive. It no, remains interesting. I do a lot of school visits because I do graphic novels for kids. And I can tell you that the librarians of these schools tell me that the graphic novels are the things that, that fly off their shelves constantly. They're the things that are in constant rotation. And there's something about, you know, just forgetting about all the digital access and all these things 
there's something so simple about a kid walking up to a shelf, seeing something that attracts their attention, pulling it down, and diving into it, it's not going to go away. Yeah, yeah. hidden away digitally, no one's there. We have a question here from Matthew. Hi. Um, just for the artist, how much of uh, an influence did life drawing play on, on your development of your style? And do you still practice life drawing or life models and things like that? No, no, I don't. Just off the cuff, whatever happens, it goes, you know, very instinctive. Um, I think I was lazy to hire a model and then stand in there to flip through mag Anatomy magazines. It's a drag. And it's uh, some of the eats up that the. Uh, it's it's too, too time consuming. It's either on the button or it's not. I don't want to be labeled. If I'm creating, it's almost like having a springboard onto my drawing board. Like, it's a one time movement. I'm on. I'm stopping as a brass with fucking book or something like that. I do apologize about my salty language earlier as well. I know the kids here and everything. Um, but, um, nah, it's just, for me, it's just a waste of time. It's just, it's, I'm lazy as well. Because I'm enormously talented. I don't need, uh, just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> or is he? Anyway, I'm just rambling now. Sorry, go guys. Well, um, I wish you had more time to do more of a, you know, uh, still learning new skills, but the, the, the job is time consuming, so I have no time to do that. I wish it could. No. I've, I've noticed that um, going to life drawing has helped me a lot. I always just notice that my art gets better if I'm actually like doing life drawing classes. Or also, not just that, like going and hanging out with my my friends who are also artists and we're just sitting around and looking for my computer. Because I think, what if, if not technically, what it teaches you is for your brain to look at things differently because especially when you're working at home all day by yourself like you start kind of falling into these ruts you know and it's a good way of kind of like stepping back and like you know like okay you know like how does this all kind of fit together it just kind of gets you out of yourself and it makes you draw and you sometimes it makes you draw things that you wouldn't never normally draw i don't draw a whole lot of naked people but being able to kind of like fit those pieces together with, from the person who's sitting in front of me is really helpful for that part of your brain. I use my brain to just see it. It's in there. I, I don't have to, to practice it. It's already in. You, it's not, I'm not famous. I just absorb and it all comes out. Usually a disaster. But, you know, <laughs> co 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 control chaos. I think it would. I, I would probably be a better artist if I did go to life drug classes more often. And I usually sort of enjoy it when I do it. Uh, I, I think it's a good thing. I probably should do it more. You know, the thing about being a comic book artist is that, you, like you were talking about, you get in a circle and you know what an arm looks like. You know how you draw an arm. And it's easy to just do it that same way over and over again, right? And if you get a chance to actually look at one someday, all of a sudden it changes how you think about doing it. To sort of improve it. That's how you move ahead. That's why, that's, yeah. why, that's why I like the comic book format. So I hate drawing feet. So you just don't kind of see the feet, you know? Some of the lazy fucker again. Oh, my language again, sorry. Tourette's! But the thing is, yeah, I should study feet, but maybe I should. Yeah, Take your advice like and learn it. and just, you know, draw feet. Yeah. Very boring feet. Right? I like to have to do the hard things every once in a while. In the, in the Phantom, uh, I've got to do a lot of horses, which I've never had to do before. Nightmare, oh, nightmare, nightmare. I saw a panel where a guy drew a horse, but he had the horse like a cow's hooves. 
<laughs> and another one where the, the front legs are like the back legs are like the, they're the same as got a leg. Yeah, yeah, that was a Have you seen it? Oh man, I've got a tattoo on my ass of that. Um, but it's funny because horses, you have to, when you, when you draw an anatomy, you have to understand the lack of motion and the way the weight is. I mean, you know, we know all this. I mean, you, and I think it's a matter of how to pull and stretch muscles and how they go. But the thing is, they're not attached to a framework. And so many people get it wrong in these Spider-Man movies and Avenger movies and what have you, and uh, all, all these superhero films are guilty of it. But the other the people who were, were CGI these Spider-Man whizzing around, they these all rubber in, made of rubber. There's no spine, sort of spine. There's no, no clavicle that it just all moves like a sponge. They don't, they don't get it, I don't think. I don't just think, what the hell is this? It's not convincing. So, uh, you know, you got one opinion on that? Be great. Yeah. yeah, yeah, you guys are doing great too. I just, I just, I don't, I don't do a whole lot. I'm lazier than you, you know. I, I, uh, no, it's impossible. People, no, look, look, you know, you, get, you guys go to these comic book shows and you like, go and you find your favorite artists and you go to Simon and you say, hey, drop me a Batman, you give him however much cash. So I do the same thing, but oh, they, they pay me. Like I, I go and I get Simon and I give him a script and then he draws cool shit that I tell him to and then they pay me. It's the dumbest job in the world. Just I just realized. I, just, I know. What the hell? Yeah. Best job in the world. Well, you figured it out. It's no, the thing is, it is free. The, it's the mind is all free. Everything is free. The typewriting just costs nothing. And uh, the, the work I do, what's a piece of paper? A piece of paper with some a pigment and some paint. That's going to cost about five dollars. Yeah. It's a license to make money, isn't it? Yeah. Just thinking. It's, right it's, yeah, you can get it's it. amazing. Yeah. You don't need any materials. You just, you just, you're, what's the, what, what are your materials? It. You can do it anyway, you can write anyway, you can draw, you can paint anywhere. Right. We don't need, you know, to employ anybody, you know, but we're all at all. Unfortunately, we have come to almost the very end of our time here today. I would love for you, as a wrap-up, if there are people in the audience who, after listening to you, really want to get into your work, can you recommend them one piece of work as a great introduction to what it is you do? Uh, sure, read Phantom every week and uh, buy one of my graphic novels. Uh, Any but, particular graphic novel that you'd recommend yes, as an introduction? Yes, my, my latest one came out last fall. It's called Quantum Mechanics, and it's about two girls who are spaceship mechanics who are kidnapped by space pirates to repair the spaceship, and they become part of this band of space pirates. Um, I would probably say Rockstars. Image the uh, second train's coming out in like two months, um, and it's like supernatural rock and roll thriller. So there's like rock and roll and like demons. There's a demon orgy in the first one, so that's fun. Um, <laughs> they're, they're all dead. They're all dead. But I do have an all ages book out with our chaos called War of the Wisp as well. But, um, I would say Frostbite. I, I don't know, man. It's almost every Marvel comic I write, so just go and randomly pick one. I probably wrote that one. Uh, Thanos, every Thanos, my Thanos one, I'm proud of that one. I guess I should say Spider-Man, but I will say read the Champions, it's a great book to read. Read Crimson, read Crimson. Crimson, Crimson. I would say uh, Slain or Home God. Um, everything I do, actually. I'm available for sketches and drawings, very reasonably priced. I can guarantee every single drawing, it was the very best thing I would have done since the last thing I did. Amazing. So join a queue. By the way, thanks for hanging around. Yeah. No, thank oh, you. And uh, please edit all the swearing up. <laughs> oh, going up live. Oops. <laughs> we, we mentally bleeped it, don't you worry. Oh, okay. Please, everyone, join me in thanking our wonderful comic creators. You can find them over the weekend in the artist
Valley down the end over here. For now, thank you all so much for sticking around. We will see you all over the weekend here at Supernova. Awesome. Well, so what do you think about those, uh, Dan? Which one was your favourite? Um, I've got to say Jeff Weigel's um, speech at yep. the dinner. Um, as, as I sort of said in the intro, just the the story behind it that, um, you know, we've spoken to him yeah. a couple of times on the podcast before and we hadn't um, asked the right questions maybe or he wasn't ready at that time to, to share that part of his journey. And I, I, I found that, um, yeah, that was, that was the really compelling one for me. Mm. The thing that I got out of all of it, out of listening to the, uh, well, there's probably two things I got out of it is that when when Jeff has taken over the Sunday, and then even with the guys that did the Supernova panel as well, is that they understand that there is a legacy to live up to. There is a legacy that you know they have to do the Phantom Justice. It's not just another character that's been sold out to a gamogra, you know, like a big media, um, uh, you know, a thing like uh, Marvel and DC where basically you just kill off a character to sell a couple of thousand more issues. Yeah. Um, you know, this is a character that has more legacy yeah. than a lot of those other characters, yeah. and they get that. Yeah, and that's and where... Get, I, oh, go on. Oh, I was... Yeah, no, that's fine. You go. No, and I think, um, and I've reflected on this during the week, actually, particularly um, Jeff's line that he's not going to break our toys sort of thing, um, <laughs> which I really liked. And, and I think on reflecting, that's probably one of the reasons why I've become, you know, I've gone off Clay Matthews lines in um, in the uh, Team Phantomman stories, like um, the, the Sandal Singh saga, that's breaking the toys a bit. So I think that's, um, you know, you've got to have that respect for the legacy. And I know it's a difficult juggle because you also want to move the story forward and you want to have mm. something interesting and new and, and whatever. But, um, yeah, you've got to be really careful. And at, at the moment, I think that certainly Jeff's dedication, I'm so glad we got to hear from him. It was so good to have a current Sunday artist, you know, or, or, or um, newspaper artist. I'd love to see Mike Manley come out. Um, so good to have him come and, and speak with us. And, um, yeah, that was a really interesting takeaway. Yeah. You know, the, other, the second thing that I got out of it was listening to Rita's speech or um, discussion mm. or lecture, however you want to, <laughs> however tight you want to put it, is just that the Phantom, you know, we, we, we talk about and we've talked about it with Jeff when he was talking about the Phantom coming to Australia. To us, he is our, he is our superhero. You know, you, you talk to the Swedes and the Norwegians and stuff like that, and to many of them, the Phantom is their superhero, their you know their mm. character. And then you know, and you know, we've got a podcast coming up where we're going to be talking to a, a massive Indian fan, and we will find out that to many, India, uh, the Phantom is the, is an Indian superhero as well. I think you can add Papua New Guinea to that list as well. Oh, and that, and. Perhaps more mm. so by, by mm. the sounds of it, like in terms of becoming so deeply ingrained in in culture mm. and uh, spirituality. Um, yes, I don't think you'd find anywhere that the Phantom is that ingrained in in certainly the spirituality side of things. No, um, yeah, exactly. And then you know, and then I, they didn't really talk about things about. I remember once when uh, I think it was in the first um, in 
podcast we did with Glenn Ford, which was, I don't know, episode 47 or, or something along those lines, where he was actually, because he actually lived up in Papua New Guinea for a period of time. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, he, he, re- he relayed a story about when King Features tried to take the comic out of the newspaper. And there was, you know, there was Reuters and, um, you know, demonstrations and stuff where people actually died and they backflipped like the next day purely because it was like, hey, hey, we can't, um, you know, we, we can't fight this. We, you know, have the Phantom, have mm. the Phantom, publish the Phantom. And so it was, it was fascinating. And Papua New Guinea, for a lot of people, I'm sure we all know people who have been born there or have come from there and stuff because it's on our doorstep. Mm. For, you know, for a long period of time, it was one of our territories as well. It was home. It was part of Australia as well. So it's, um, you know, I think you said that you've got Papua New Guinea um, students that come to your school as well. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I really, uh, I've spoken to them about it um, a little bit, but uh, <laughs> not going to lie, mostly with a view to them finding some old comics and bringing them back down for me after, <laughs> after they've been gone home from the boarding house for a little while. But uh, yeah, it, it, it's something that's worth exploring a, um, a lot more. And if we can find out more when we do talk to uh, Chris, the author of the book that's mm. coming out, that'll be fascinating. Just to clarify, and it was a question without notice, but I've looked it up very quickly. The interview with Glenn Ford was episode 33, um, that first time we spoke to him. So um, that's probably the I'm... furthest out you've been on a fandom fact for a long, long time. <laughs> I'm, uh, I'm only human. I knew it was before 50. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but no, thank you for correcting that one. Um, <laughs> So, yeah, so I hope everyone enjoyed that. What we'll do is we'll quickly wrap up because uh, some of those panels did go on for a while and um, some of our listeners do struggle with the pause button from what I've heard. <laughs> there there um, was some discussion at Supernova as to whether or not you could listen to a whole four-hour podcast all in one go. <laughs> yes, and just so you are aware, I think it was Sean, I think he was the biggest culprit, you can press pause. He, d- he did explain how he used it, yeah. <laughs> So, and, uh, and I'd like to just highlight, Sean, that was a, a little shout-out just for you, mate. Um, so no more complaints. <laughs> <laughs> Although, if you want to, if you want to beg, because um, I know you're good at begging, um, you know, I'm sure we can do something for you as well. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so as we wrap up, uh, we thank everyone for listening uh, to the panels. I hope people enjoyed them. Um, just a shout-out to our Patreon uh, supporters. We've got three new um patreons um that is chris michael and david a huge shout out to them we really appreciate uh your support basically what patreon does is it helps us to be able to pay the bills be able to keep the website running to be able to keep everything what we do podcasts cost money our phone calls a lot of the time we actually have to call mobiles instead of skype that all costs money um so, you know, there's a lot of other things as well. Mm. Huge, and- huge shout out to those. And for people who do support us on Patreon, if you support us with more than $5, um, you do get access to the Phantom Preservation Project or the P3. Basically, that gives it's a huge depository of all sorts of cool Phantom stuff. Videos, audio clips, music, uh, newspaper articles, um, you know, you, you name it, and I believe in the next week or so that there will be an update. 
Um, so yeah. basically, every month or so, we do. Well, certainly we, during the school holidays, do it's a good opportunity for me yes. to have time to do that. <laughs> yeah, and so if you, uh, for those three new uh, new supporters, you look out for your um, uh, your email or message us if you want to be included with the um, the Patreon Facebook page. And basically, you get access to cool stuff, and you also get uh, uh, you get informed about stuff before it becomes public as well. The other Uh, thing that um, we should say that Patreon has really helped us out with, um, we've we've, there's a level on there that we've talked about about getting to merchandising. Um, We've probably gone mm. a little bit early or before we got to that level just to see what we could do, Um, and so through the funds. Well, it, not completely. We're still in the hole a little bit, to be honest. But um, um, hopefully, the the debtors can hold on for a little while. Um, but uh, it did enable us to produce some Chronicle Chamber mm. T-shirts and some stickers, which um, you know we were able to give away to some of the creators down at Supernova, which is really cool. And we can also have available for our um, our patrons. So it's really yep. cool to be able to to do something like that. So. Yes. Now we do have about eight shirts left, uh, sizes ranging from uh, small to medium to extra, 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 extra large. Um, and I'm not joking about all those X's. Um, <laughs> and we've got some stickers as well. So if you are interested, drop us a line, drop us an email, and you can do that via chroniclechamber at gmail.com, or you can do us via our Facebook page, Chronicle Chamber Phantom Fan Page. Uh, or you can just message myself or Dan, and then we can get hold of you as well. Um, our website is chroniclechamber.com. Uh, as I said before, our email is chroniclechamber at gmail.com. Our social media links on Facebook is Chronicle Chamber Phantom Fan Page. We're also admin of the Phantom Collector Group. On Twitter, it's at Chronicle Tweets, and on Instagram, it is at Chronicle Chamber. And, of course, you can subscribe to us on iTunes or via apps like Podbean, Player FM, CastBox, Listen Notes, et cetera, et cetera. Um, as always, Dan, always a pleasure. Uh, thanks for joining us. And until next time, happy fandoming. Happy fandoming to you, mate. Five hundred years ago, he washed ashore the sole survivor of a shipwreck. And upon the skull of the man who killed his dad, he said, I'm mad, I must eradicate piracy, injustice and cruelty. And all my sons will follow me, so evildoers will believe that this man cannot die. The Phantom, the ghost who walks. The Phantom, enemies beware. The Phantom's always there, but you won't find the Phantom.